Hello and welcome once again to Radio Moorport, the podcast where we discuss, rate, review, analyse and generally ramble about Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. This week we're talking about Carpe Jugulum. Uh, this week I'm Colin. This week he's... Steve. Again. Yeah. Ah. I know, I think we might vary it up. Maybe yeah. maybe next week I'll be Steve and you'll be Colin. Uh, well, this is a very subtle way of just telling me just get out of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I understand, it's fine. We can, get, we can get someone new, someone better. No, I just want, like, if, if we switch it around, I won't have to edit it. So I don't, I don't think I could, you know, make a smart commentary as you generally make. And I don't think you laugh as often as I can, which <laughs> I've noticed that I do an awful lot at listening back in the occasional podcast. I think I'm very funny. <laughs> Well, we're talking about very funny books, so, you know, laughing's no bad thing. It heals the soul. Too dry. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Right, so... I I suppose we better go over the plot, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. So, it's basically that we're back in Longra uh, with the the tree, or is it four, which is... And basically, McGrath and Varence, his daughter, the newborn princess of Longra, is getting... Uh, named but yeah I was going to say christened can't, it's it kind can't of like, like right? it's a bit like a baptism but essentially it's a naming ceremony mm-hmm. and everyone in all of Lancre is invited except due to an unfortunate mistake uh, Granny Weatherwax who uh, whose invite is basically misplaced due to a greedy little magpie mm-hmm. um, so she is away uh, while this party is happening so she doesn't see that King Verence has invited vampires into the kingdom of Lancre which, unfortunately, due to the rules of uh, vampirism, means that basically they have free reign over the entire country. They can go where they like within the kingdom. Yeah, and and, and now that she's gone, it's like the three remaining witches are their roles, their archetypes within the witching trio are being realigned so that it was, it's the maiden, mother, and crone. And, and you previously had uh, uh, McGrath, Nanny, and Granny, and those roles, and later replaced that McGrath tagging out to Agnes but now you have Agnes is the maiden McGrath's the mother because she's just had a child and mm-hmm. Nanny is becoming the crone and is acting a lot grumpier and she they're kind of conscious that they're not very good at these roles they um they try to confront the vampires but they're easily overcome by the vampire's mind control Agnes has some resistance to it because of her uh, her split personality with Perdita means mm-hmm. that she's not being controlled and the other one who is also resistant to it is uh, mightily Oates, the Omnian priest they've brought in to, because to he's name the baby. Because so he's so very confused yeah. and like uh, not uh, many uh, parts of his mind. He's just like he's constantly in argument with himself, and because mm-hmm. he's not single-minded, the vampires can't really get a hold on him. Um, basically, anyway, eventually uh, Granny comes back for a confrontation, which doesn't seem to go very well. The vampires basically completely overwhelm her with. Um, Psychic blast, similar to like a Pokemon psychic blast. <laughs> yeah, um, it's super effective. It is or super so, effective. Or so it seems. So it seems. Um, so basically, they uh, draw some blood out of her and try to turn her into a vampire. Um, she is left outside the Great Hall, and basically, Agnes carries her back to uh, Hodges Arg's hut. Yeah. Um, and there they discover that Hodges Arg has been searching for a phoenix, which is somewhere in the Kingdom of Lancre. It has come along along with some centaurs with the vampires. They've just been driven out to the kingdom. And uh, once they discover that the phoenix has actually been resting in Hodges Arg's loft, Granny takes it, along with Michael Oates, and travels to Uberwald, where yeah. the vampires are in pursuit of 
Nanny and Magrat yeah, who yeah, think Uberwald is the safest place to be because they know about vampires there and they know how to kill them. So they, they go back to Uberwald and at this point then um, uh, Vlad, the son of the vampire clan, he's kind of sweet on Agnes because mm. he can't really figure her out. So he takes her back and they go to this village. Um, uh, what's it? Eskarot? Is that the name of the village? Es- es- that, yeah. es- no, Escrow, is it? Escrow? I think so. Uh, uh, but then if I, you have any, anyway. <laughs> yeah, in any case, they go back there um, and you see that the Escrow, yeah, they, they mm. have, um, the vampires have reached an arrangement with the village's people whereby the people just come out at certain times of year and all get like bitten by the vampires and it's sort of like a, a vampirism on an industrial level. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then, but the vampires start acting very oddly and they can't quite bite, bring themselves to bite people so the people rise up in rebellion against them. Mm-hmm. The vampires got to flee back to their uh, castle. They don't go near the castle. Don't go near the castle. Great yeah. name for a castle. <laughs> Uh, where McGrath and Nanny are uh, hiding, they have uh, kind of teamed up with Igor, who's like the 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 magpire. That's the the vampire family. He's their family servant, and he's sort of very put out by their uh, modernizing of vampirism, and which prefers to kind of the ways the old count done it, who was a sort of like Bella Lugosi uh, mm. Dracula esque figure. I think at this point we should probably point out that these uh, vampires, they're very modernized vampires who are basically going against vampiric stereotypes so garlic doesn't seem to affect them they're able to walk around in the daylight yeah and yeah. uh holy symbols don't affect them that's yeah okay. they've basically been training themselves to um be anti-vampires in a way trying to be like the not traditional stereotypes in order to go against it because they just think that's a foolish way to go about things yeah but when the count comes back um igor uh resurrects the, count. the old count yeah and uh, basically, uh, Granny has another showdown with the Count, the old or the new Count, I suppose, and uh, highlights how the old Count never made it like an arrangement. It was mm. always, you know, there's a bit of sport in it. It kept people on their toes. It wasn't a case of um, vampires ruling the people. It was just like a threat that was in the background that you know, kind of kept them sharp. Yeah. I suppose in a way. I think that's the message that's coming. Yeah, across yeah, there. sort of that it isn't as a. Uh doesn't have this veneer of dignity and supposed fairness and rightness about it. It's yeah, like yeah. He knows he's a monster and... And he accepts that. Like, he doesn't try... At least, he's a decent monster who doesn't try to trick people into thinking that he's uh, what they deserve, basically. And it all kind of culminates when Michael Oates, who has been with uh, Granny the whole way uh, along... He defeats. He's the one who defeats the count yeah, he by cuts off his head with an axe. Cuts off his head with an axe, which turns out to be a holy symbol, not because like it's an ancient reliquary or anything, but because he perceives it as such. Yeah, which he, is a really he's, nice he's touch. brought Granny all the way to Uberwald, and they've kind of had a, a sort of heart to heart and a you know like theological discussion about religion that's helped them. It's a nice kind of some of his uh, doubts. Also, at this point, Granny reveals that um, when the vampires sucked her blood. She was in vampire. They were weather waxed, so mm. that's why they're acting so strangely, and they can't bring themselves to hurt the villagers, and they're craving tea and stuff like that, <laughs> so that their their powers are temporarily suppressed, and this is mm. what allows the people to rise up against them and allows Oates to kill the um, the uh, head vampire. And uh, she very mercifully uh, allows the vampires to be killed, yeah. um, to be resurrected again in like 50 years or so, um, rather than letting the crowd, you know, torture them or whatever it is they want to do. So uh, she gives them back to the old count, 
keep telling him to teach them to be stupid, basically to bring them back into traditional vampirism and not these like newfangled ways. And then at the end of the book, we're kind of back to normal, really. Yeah. Um, I think Agnes uh, sees Mightily Oats off in... It's kind of hinted at, I think there's a bit of a romantic thing there, but it's not dwelled upon. Yeah. So I don't think it's really... You're supposed to think that way. It's just kind of a little inkling of something that's there. Um, she says farewell to him by giving him a poultice for his boil. The most romantic of gestures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Nanny bids farewell to him as well, finally conceding that he's not that bad, I suppose. Mm. And um, I think Granny, she's... Oh, yeah, and, and the final point for Granny, she uh, writes on her sign, which traditionally says, I ain't and dead. Uh, she writes, I still ain't and dead. Yeah. Which is a, a very, very, very nice ending, I think, considering like the themes go, running through it So uh, and dealing with vampirism. So, yeah, that's the plot of Carpe Juggalum. So, quick question, Colm. What did you think? Um, well, going into this, I'd only read it the once years ago, mm-hmm. and I remember enjoying it then, and I remember since uh, reading a lot of uh, critiques of it that basically, uh, you know, the central point or reservation people had about the book was that it's a retread of Lords and Ladies in a lot of ways. I think you, you a said so mm-hmm. you felt, and um, I remember also like when when we done Lords and Ladies thing, it was just this wonderful climax to the well, like what seemed like the the arc of the Lunker Witches, mm-hmm. and then how deftly Masquerade had managed to follow on from that by kind of shifting the priorities of the the narrative, not making it about like defeating a big villain and more like yeah. a kind of introspective uh, character thing and culture clash with Ankh Morpork. So. I thought like, okay, this is, they're going back to Lankra, you know, that culture clash isn't there, it's like a big, it's vampires versus witches, I mean, what's the, the, the blurb on the back of my, I've got the Corgi paperback edition, same as yourself, and it's, uh, mildly else has not picked a good time to be a priest, he thought he'd come to Lankra for a simple ceremony, and now he's caught up in a war between vampires and witches, you know, mm. so it's very much uh, pitching itself that way. Yeah, it's very traditionally uh, done, ironically, considering uh, the book itself goes against tradition <laughs> yeah. in many ways. So... Like, I was kind of wary of all that coming into it. And then for the first, maybe, like, third of the book, I was thinking, this is great. This is mm. well. Like, that, the, the bit when Granny uh, goes to see, um, is, is going to see the, the, the woman in labor. Um, yeah. You know, and, and Granny just thinking about her, her role and kind of, like, like having these feelings of, you know, bitterness and resentment and, uh, I suppose, like, horse that she apparently hasn't been invited to... Uh, McGrath's daughter, who McGrath has actually named after Granny, yeah. and she hasn't uh, been invited to her naming ceremony, but in classic Granny fashion, not really being able to show it, even in her thoughts, mm. you know, um, and then while that's going on, I thought, like, the the kind of realignment with the witches, the other three witches' roles was sort of fun, like, uh, yeah. like because the, the nanny thing, I, I was reading that start, and I was thinking... God, Nanny's, Nanny's much grumpier here. Like, I get that they're trying to set up the mm. her hostility to Oats and maybe he'll overcome that or whatever, but I thought, well, she's much more of a sour old baggage done, you know. <laughs> she has been. And then you then you kind of realise, oh, oh, that's because she's becoming the crown, you know. Mm. It's working quite naturally. And I like, I like, uh, I like kind of um, confident young, 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 young Mother McGrath. Uh, yeah. Like, and, and I love that bit where Agnes kind of, feels resentful. Yeah, that, that's one of my favourite bits of it, the fact that Agnes and uh, Magrath don't really <laughs> get on, like not in a really 
openly hostile we hate each other way but it's kind of similar to the way Magra and Nanny used to get on and that they're kind of chummy but by the same token Magra gets really frustrated with Nanny because she's always like withholding information and that sort of mm-hmm. thing it's kind of a similar case here but with a slight difference that uh, Agnes seems to think that she and Magra are on level footing but Magrat seems to be acting like she knows yeah, more. Yeah, like she's, I, she's I being... that, that line about like yeah, when when you when a person gets the category mother, everyone else just gets part of the category child. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> and, and that's quite very relatable too. I mean, like as, as as two uh, kind of childless loners, I'm sure yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've had as I have that experience where you're meeting someone, particularly someone you think of as a peer or a friend who's yeah. like recently become a parent, and there is this weird feeling of. Oh, they they were they're, they, kind of, they're, they're on this different plane of of what it is to be a person now because they're taking care of it. They have they have much more responsibility being, yeah. and they just seem to be like more on top of things like than is necessary for us to really be. Yeah. Like so, uh, yeah, they do kind of assume like not intentionally an air of um, you know just uh, superiority, like not not like in a really aggressive sort of way, but just you know like. I'm I'm taking on more than you, you know. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's just a very simple statement of fact, really, in their manner. Yeah, it's, which it's is good. very understandable, but it's also kind of, um, I suppose, it ir- can be frustrating. Ir- yeah, when you're on the other side of it. But I also, I was also thinking, ah, you know, fuck off, Agnes. Like I, I, I've, I've been through the three first three books at McGrath where she's a wet hand. I really like yeah. that she's grown confident now. It and is. I love, actually, I love the fact that she gets. Uh, Nanny's dirty jokes and yeah. and then even manages to shock Nanny with one. That's really good. End. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, there is and um, the way she. Uh, I always I like the running joke about how she's carrying basically the entire nursery, or my, she's getting yeah, Mikey yeah. Oates to carry the entire nursery on his back. And like it just it actually seems like a very nanny sort of thing to do. It's saying if you carry the bag of used nappies and don't forget that little spinny thing. She likes that like uh, <laughs> above her cob. And all the, the really sort of uh, the anxious early parents stuff of oh you know Marens thinks she might be a young learner so we we've got to stimulate her with as many bright colours as <laughs> oh, possible. And, and she said her first word the other day it was blup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not really a word. <laughs> um, so th- there's all of that uh, and I really enjoyed all of that and. Um, I thought, like, I remember, I couldn't remember much about Oats before it, and I was coming into this thinking, like, is there much to be mined out of Omnianism after, like, you know, all he done in Small Gods? Mm. But, like, Oats is a kind of a, a sort of horse of a different colour where he's has this, um, like, I suppose, well, I was about to say more modern, but uh, what, what we, uh, I shouldn't say more modern because there's still plenty of countries in the world that are, you know, really incredibly religious, like semi-theocracies, maybe not to the level Omnia was in small gods, but still. Uh, but I suppose more secular, like in the way that we'd be uh, used to somewhat in Ireland and certainly in the UK from the, the point of view Pratchett was writing up, this feeling of like, you know, Oh yeah, morally, you know, all that like like old hardline religion was wrong, but it also had this sort of stomach and purpose to it. that, yeah, that you was, feel your current kind of like wishy washy. There was a strong strong iron bar of justice kind of running through it, even if it was like you know wrapped up in all this messiness, like yeah. you know of uh, you know not quite uh, rightness. You know, like um, what was it the the line that Nanny has uh, when Mightley Oates says there's a lot of grey areas and she's like nope that's not true yeah, there's only black and white and the white that has gotten a bit scruffed up yeah and I'm surprised you don't know that and it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting viewpoint to take um, and I think you can kind of 
take that or leave it, mm-hmm. like what she says. Um, you, ca- you can say that, like, oh, yeah, maybe there is just black and white and the white's been scruffed up, or I think you can also disagree with that and say, no, there's tons of grey areas. Yeah, <laughs> but his whole thing is about all the splits and schisms he talks about in... Uh, in Omnianism, which mm. initially I was kind of dismayed by, because I was like, oh, but like, oh, Brutus work, like, you know, he, yeah, he like, but, but then I thought, yeah, you know what, like, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's kind of, um, fair and true to life, because for one, it shows that, uh, Brutus ultimately is just a person, and mm. that, like, you know, he isn't going to kind of, like, cure everything forevermore, and he didn't and want to, time moves on. yeah, yeah, exactly. which, is a, which is a big point, the fact that he wasn't saying, my way is the right way, mm-hmm. and Om's way isn't necessarily the right way, he was basically just saying, be good and decent uh, to each other, which is what Granny is saying, when uh, Mightily Oates uh, describes, like, why, what was it, uh, remember at one point he says, what if people just want to get on with their lives without uh, Om and just like be good, decent people? And he replies, well, Om once said that to believe in Om is to be a decent person. He says, oh, that's very clever. <laughs> He's but, got you coming and going uh, there. That, but that's, I don't think, like, that's not the message that comes across from Brutha, but it does seem like something Om would have said yeah. in uh, Small Gods. So it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, Brutha doesn't represent all of Omnian theology. Yeah. He's but just a he's, a, he's just a very strong figurehead in it. But doesn't his beliefs don't necessarily like cover everything? They're just a strong influencer, and this comes across in the fact that like you know they're so divided in Omnia about how mm-hmm. uh, how what the the way of Om is, and I think that's just a commentary on the way religion naturally becomes mm-hmm. like in real life. You know, it doesn't matter like if it is the real religion or the true religion. There's always going to be divides amongst different extremists saying like well, I mean look at Catholicism and Protestantism yeah there's a great cartoon where it's uh, this, this fella in like a Sunday school or something and he's, he's got this massive chart up where it, it, it's like a kind of a, a like a you begin with one thing in the middle and then it, it branches out into like four which branches out into eight and keeps branching out and branching mm-hmm. out and he's pointing at one like tiny square at the end of it and he's like so, uh, like you know, like this is all the schisms and like thousands of years of uh, of, of of Christianity and different sects before we finally got it, got it right with our one. I said, yeah. So I like all that because um, there's a kind of very much a fate versus works divide to it, where the idea of like uh, to believe in almost to be good is to combine the two, where it's mm. like, well, like you're your faith in in Om or in like whatever religion is something that you like integrate into your real life you know and, and that means being good and it's like what uh, like drives someone like Oates to be good or or someone like Britta and you can't kind of divide the two you can't be like a bastard and say oh no but I believe mm. um or for them like it's like you know and certainly there's kind of human uh, uh obviously humanist arguments against it but for them it's like oh well what makes me good in the first place is that uh, like I believe in this benevolent force who you know makes and looks over the world, so that inspires me to be good. And then you have the like all the the, the ridiculous schisms they have and the, mm. the Omni Church, and it's like it stopped becoming about works and the reality and like what like what they do to prove their you know belief in this benevolent being, and more about like I don't know like what you know their interpretation of these tiny little differences in theology. Um, and that's like something that comes up a lot in, in, in probably most directly here, but I think a lot in Pratchett of that, like, uh, I suppose, like your actual uh, belief or the way you put a system into 
into like action versus the all the ephemera that evolves around that system that you can kind of argue around and get your teeth into without ever actually you know doing it um mm. like he sort of talks about it in a weird positive way with the uh the Unseen University, where Ponder thinks about how, like, the whole, like, everything in the university is to distract the wizards from doing what they really could do. <laughs> but, like, here it's a negative sense, where it's, like, mm-hmm. like, like, Brutta's interpretation of Omniism uh, is this very positive thing that they could be putting into action and going around helping people, but they've redeveloped this whole system to distract themselves from that, and instead they can kind of, like, mm-hmm. spend our a- ages arguing about how many angels dance in the head of a pin rather than going out and, like... 16. Feeding the poor or whatever. <laughs> 16 according to Granny Weather. Yeah. How many angels I'm, the head I'm not going to argue at all. <laughs> it says, did you count that? Or like, what was it? Uh, My Leo says, um, this is like, uh, how, what was it? Oh, he says something along the lines of, uh, did you count how many it was? Or, and she just said something along the lines of it. It doesn't matter. That's just how many there is. You know, <laughs> she's got a very firm belief and it's actually very interesting. I think, um, Someone says, uh, Igor says, I think that uh, single, no, sorry, it is Mike Leotz who says that uh, the vampires can take control of single-minded people far easier than, uh, you know, people who are like a bit scatterbrained. And he says that's a bit surprising, but in a way that's a very clever plot device because that's, that means like, like granny is the biggest victim in all this because she is in many ways the most single-minded person mm-hmm. even though she does second guess herself but she kind of doesn't allow herself to second guess yeah herself. yeah as i said even a bit at the start we're getting her in our monologue and she's thinking about being not being uh, invited uh, um and how hurt she is but she's not really thinking about it you know she's yeah. thinking around it and you can kind of read it between the lines it's um nanny has a great line where she says that um uh, Granny Weatherwax always has Granny Weatherwax peering over her shoulder to keep her like yeah. on the straight and narrow, and that kind of feeds into the way Granny thinks as well. Like she doesn't allow herself to be scatterbrained. She doesn't allow herself to be, you know, uh, question things or to have doubts. She's just always. She basically has a whip on her own back, making sure that she's doing the right thing at all times, and it does come across. I mean. I think I remember um, the first one of these books that I think we both read for Radio Moorpork was uh, Lord's Witches Abroad. Oh, it was Witches Abroad, yeah. And I think I remember saying at the time that I don't remember, I always remember Granny Weatherwax being a great character, but because she was, she just seemed to be invincible. You know, like, Granny Weatherwax was never beaten. And they, I think every character says that at one point. Granny Weatherwax, she'll never be yeah, beaten. Yeah, it plays off it nicely here where yeah. they just keep thinking, oh, like these vampires are here and all we have to do is find Granny and then everything will be okay. Yeah, and it's... it's uh, at, If you think about it, if you take a step back, you kind of think, well, that's a bit dull, really. So I remember thinking to myself, why did I like Granny Weatherwax so much as a character if like she just always wins? But the thing is, they do play with that a lot. There are plenty of times where you think, well, maybe, you know, it's kind of... It's interesting because you do always have great confidence in her, but you can see her struggle. Yes, she always wins, but it does seem to come at a cost in nearly every book. And in this one, it's I think it's... Um, I don't know if it's this one or Lords and Ladies. I think I like the best. But, um, I mean, in Lord and Le- Lords and Ladies, we got to see a glimpse of how Granny Weatherwax was afraid of becoming this old mm-hmm. woman who was, like, you know, just gibbering and nobody cared about. And in this one, it just seems like... I think she's leaning more towards what if she turns bad, and uh, but also um, what if, what if she turns bad, but also what if she's simply beaten. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a weird duality, like double fear thing going on there, and 
it's quite a lot to take in. Yeah, there, there's also a nice kind of human fear of it, where when she's feeling that she hasn't been invited, she's just thinking, oh, all these people just don't like me and mm. see me as an old bitch. You know, like the part where she thinks about when she caught that uh, child killer guy and yeah. how then he was he was home but at his funeral people were saying oh it wasn't so bad you know yeah. and, and blaming her and it's more like um she's the one who makes the hardest yeah yeah that, bis- that whole like business of witchcraft meaning standing right under the edge where decisions get made i really like and i really like too that it's this idea of you know so often in uh any civilization, any society, um, it, it's kind of pronounced. That there's the classic trope of these small rural, uh, you know, uh, communities like Lanka that actually have a dark secret at the heart mm. of them. You know, I've seen them in, in so uh, so many different shows and books and films and so on. Um, and the idea that like evil can be happening beneath the surface the whole time, uh, and like being good and being kind of on the edge where the decisions be made means you have to sort of drag that to the surface and stop it and ultimately it's a good thing but it won't always be a pleasant thing and it won't Mm. always be something people like because the reason it's been happening is that people have been able to ignore it so like you know my interpretation of that like the the child killer uh, and then people saying oh it wasn't so bad was that obviously they didn't know it was him you know so uh, but that involved a certain complacency on their part presumably in such a small community Mm. that like someone could be going out killing children and you're not wondering like oh you know, there's Steve, and like he's always going. Like he see, like I really like him, but he's always going out at night. That time, maybe it's him. You're just what are you implying, Paul? <laughs> I couldn't remember the fellow's name. So I just used the name of the nearest child killer. <laughs> um, Listen, we still have knives here, so you just watch your mouth. <laughs> You're looking very young. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad of that. Um, but you know what I mean, like that they would kind of them when, like when he gets caught and uh, hanged. They can't reconcile their view of like, oh, this fella I really, you know, got on with was actually horrible, and that involves obviously a certain amount of introspection of guilt or of how, you know, how did I not know? Instead, mm. they'd rather separate the two and think, oh, he was this nice guy, and it's kind of Granny's fault for bringing all this badness to the surface. Mm. Um, and I, I like, I like that, like the kind of uh, human toll that takes on her, where like she's absolutely certain it's right, but. She knows that doing it so much just, you know, makes people kind of dislike her and You know, it's interesting that you say that because that's kind of holding up a a mirror to society at the moment now with all the um, I Believe Her and Time's Up movement, you know, like, because similarly, you know, you, you do get that sort of guilt, you know, say one of your... And, and, like, because we're both guys, like, I mean, I think we can relate to this particularly, like, you know, someone who we've been friends with for years, is, oh, he was a really nice guy, yeah, we've been friends for years, and then suddenly, now, luckily, I don't think either of us have had this occasion, but or occurrence happen, but I'm kind of living in fear of it coming up someday, uh, when one of, like, a friend that you've had for years, you find out, oh, well, they raped somebody, or, yeah, like, you know, yeah. they abused somebody, and you're going to have to deal with that, you're going to have to think, wow, well, this is a... Uh, you know, someone who I always consider to be a wonderful person, but suddenly I have to come come to terms with the fact that, well, there actually there's something really really dark stirring underneath that, mm. and even even when it's not people you know, even when it's just like uh, I suppose celebrities and actors, yeah, uh, yeah, figures you would have admired and kind of like, and and then their whole uh, oeuvre feels tainted, mm. um, and that is something like. Uh, difficult to come to terms with and I suppose like a lot of time people's immediate reaction maybe less so now because the whole movement is, is gathering so much uh, momentum and, and there is like a I suppose more awareness of uh, institutional abuse and harassment than the reality of it but maybe initially the reaction is kind of like 
you don't want to believe the, the accuser, the victim, because it's like, oh, it's going to complicate and taint my whole view of this yeah, like, uh, person I really like and all, all the things they're involved in. So it was much easier to just to believe that there's some troublemaker there to kind of like, like what those people are thinking of. It is easier to do, but I remember thinking, um, because it's celebrities, that's where it always comes down to, because these are someone that you could admire and say, I love their work. But, you know, if you ever get to a situation where, like, there's this guy and he made chairs and he turns out he was a rapist. You don't say, oh, but he made really good chairs. I don't think I can believe that, you know. It's, you always get that, like, specifically with, like, people in the entertainment industry because, you know, if you grew up with them or whatever. No one but, who could lay the chair leg like that would, <laughs> would lay a finger on someone in any negative way. But um, I find it really interesting that we're having this kind of crisis of uh, faith with... Uh, granny in that she's wondering you know is she doing the right thing and like do people view her as like a good figure when she's trying to be good and then completely inversely we have the va- uh, the magpiers ma- ma- sorry yeah is it vampires magpires. magpire how do they pronounce that magpire? Uh, well, well they it's vampire with an i and vampire with a y which uh, as far as i know it's just yeah. the same way because vlad has to correct agnes yeah i would have said yeah the magpire because i or is it's uh a nod at uh, Magyar, which is uh, mm. like a Hungarian like uh, people that a lot of vampire lore would have emerged from. But and it's great. A nod at Magpie too. It's great that they're doing the complete inverse. They have the complete inverse of what Granny is going through. That everybody traditionally has always viewed vampires as this like stereotypically evil monsters, and they're trying to turn people around on that. Trying to say yeah. we're actually not so bad. And even though I don't think there's ever a point where we're thinking oh, well, maybe they have a point, but their arguments are interesting, you know, like, throughout when, um, uh, I think, whenever Vlad, I think Vlad and Agnes, their interactions really embody it more than anything else, and there's a couple of times where uh, Vlad says, uh, or when Agnes accuses Vlad, you turn people into vampires, he says, no, not always, what are you talking about? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, No, like, uh, we don't... Turn, if you eat a piece of chocolate, you don't want to turn it into another Agnes, do you? There's less yeah. chocolate to go around. And I think even... I'm surprised he doesn't uh, bring up, you know, people just eating meat or anything like that. Uh, yeah. He does say... He does refer to... Uh, towards the end, when they're much less sympathetic, the vampires start referring to people as meat. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it's kind of there. I, I think it's a good thing that he doesn't lean too heavily on it because we're a bit too on the nose. But it's just an interesting dynamic there. And uh, the fact that um, Granny says that this isn't a grey area, it's just like the white that uh, has gotten a bit smudged, it's kind of a metaphor for, I think, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I think it's a bit of a metaphor for Lankra, the entire kingdom in general, because uh, Varys has invited all this, you know, just the entire, bad, all the bad events that are happening, you could see it as like a smudge on Lankra, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it just makes things a little unclear. And uncertainty is a big thing. That's like the, the concept of people being uncertain and confused is just like a really big thing that runs through the entire book, um, yeah. which is you know a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, Kira did right. I hadn't had that parallel with Granny of the Vampires, but it is true where she's kind of very open about the fact that like she makes these hard decisions on the edge, and they're trying to uh, like obscure the idea that there's a decision to be made at all. And it's like, oh, no, yeah. this is nice. This is just modern times. Mm. This is how things go. This is all for the best, uh, rather than kind of admitting, yeah, we're doing something, you know, really horrible and drastic. Yeah. Um, it's um, And there's, like, lots of, like, little... There's lots of parallels on that. Nearly, I feel like nearly everybody goes through something like that. One of my favorite ones is... Um, uh, 
the way some characters, specifically Hodges are and Michael Oates, approach books. Mm-hmm. Which like books are have always very stereotypically been like a source of facts and uh, you know we we know now obviously I mean pretty much the entirety of our course like made us question what we're reading yeah and like the context in which we're reading it but um, in most like at least a couple of years ago you know books they're always just facts you know this is where you get your information and they both approach it in two very different ways whereas Hodges Ah looks through books for uh, ways to catch a phoenix. He basically, I think it says something along the lines of it's impossible to catch a phoenix or, uh, you know, there's only ever one. And he just ignores it. He's saying, well, you know, people who write books, they know all about writing books. But what do they know about, you know, yeah. uh, or uh, catching birds? <laughs> Whereas Mike Oates takes the opposite approach. Like he's looking at books and he's reading it as fact. And uh, it takes him a while to get there. But eventually he realizes once he finds out that the Count de Magpier had actually contributed to some of the books that he's mm. he'd been writing or he'd been reading. He realizes, wow, maybe I can't actually take all my information from books and I have to take it from real life experiences, which is a beautiful arc that culminates really nicely towards the end when uh, he has that line with uh, Granny Weatherwax saying, I feel like everywhere I look, I see something holy. Yeah. And she just kind of nods and smiles and says, right, finally, I've gotten through to you, which is a beautiful well, when moment. He, when he burns the book to the, that, the Book of Alms to make a warmth for her and it's sort of like, you know, I, I suppose his thing is like ultimately that the, the content of that book is about you know helping people uh, and so on. So like this is this is the best way it can be used. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than kind of uh, using it to sort of uh, just get into all these like internecine arguments about theology. I think that's a beautiful moment because I mean, if you just think about it, like there's so much symbolism in that act. Like I mean, he was living so rigorously by the rules set down by this book. Yeah. And he doesn't change like his general outlook that much, but basically he just says, right, I'm just going to throw away the rule book and I can be a little bit lax because I can take the context of a situation into account as opposed to just being rigorously working within the confines of the rules set yeah. down by these people who I don't even know, you know? So yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting. And actually that's... Um, Again, kind of holding up a mirror to... I'm sorry, this is getting much more political than uh, most of our other episodes. But uh, that, okay, well, please do, because I'm about to get really political with the next thing I do. Okay, think, well, I just, uh, that reminds me a little bit of... I mean, at the moment, we're having a referendum coming up, as you know, about the pro-choice and pro-life, or, or, which I'm not going to go too much into, because I'll rant like crazy if I do. But um, it, calls in, it, it brings the whole idea of uncertainty... Um, uh, again, like I mean, with the referendum, I mean, you're on one side or the other, or you're undecided. You can either be pro-life or pro-choice, and it is very easy to just kind of be single-minded in that and um, just think, boil it down to the simplest elements. It's like, okay, pro-life, uh, it means that like you are want to repeal a piece of legislation that uh, allows abortions up to uh, it's. Oh God! No, no. So the pro-choice, you're you're repealing. The, oh yeah, sorry. So if you're pro-life, you want to pro-life. You're keeping it as is. Yeah, and if you boil it down to its simplest terms, even the terminology, which I hate, is um, you know, it's pro-life. That means that you're like a uh, cherishing life, that, and that is like boiled down into. If, this if you're sim- on the other side of it, you're after the anti-life equation. Yeah, like, apparently, uh, yeah, from Superman. But you know, <laughs> but you know, like that's boiling it down to the simplest way, and it's ignoring context. It's yeah. ignoring everything. It just says, well, you know, this is about saving lives, so that's the good way to be. But if you take all these other elements into account, like you know, the the likes of um, you know, not getting um, 
treatment for uh, you know leukemia or anything yeah. like that. There's likes of um, they will feel abnormalities exactly, mm-hmm. and like uh, taking rape and incest into account. Uh, this is a very cheerful yeah. episode that well, we're doing. Look, it's, it's, it's not a stretch to do this because this. Uh, like Granny literally has to go and decide between whether she's going to save the life of a mother or save mm. the life of a child when a woman is giving birth. Yeah, um, it's contextual. And, and the whole idea of like, oh, being a witch means you're you're uh, you uh, you have to make the choice, and that choice is hard. Mm. Is like I was reading it, and you know, again because reading it like was surrounded by posters for for both sides. I was like, oh, this. This feels like so uh, weird Very and serendipitous mm. that uh, that's uh, it's happening right now, and even the idea of like uh, the the father not being uh, as involved in the decision when she says like it's such a quite poignant bit when she says, "Do you think he's a bad man to the midwife?" And she goes, "No," and she goes, "Well, why would you want to give him such a like horrible choice to make?" Mm. Um, is yeah, it's uh, and, and the idea of her like even helping the. She talks about like helping the sick die peacefully, like how when you go and someone will be in agony and um, their relatives are sort of asking but will never quite say it right. Well, you know what can you do? There's nothing to be done, which again is very poignant in light of Terry Pratchett later seeking assisted suicide when he uh, mm. um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Obviously, he, he didn't go through with it in the end. But and and it's very much the two are very much connected because it's it's usually uh, often a lot of pro life arguments. Kind of the idea is like that. Uh, you know, liberalizing um, abortion legislation in any way will open the floodgates towards euthanasia and mm. um, like all the I don't know uh, what's the word eugenics and uh, all sorts of things like that. Um, so the idea of kind of assisted dying or euthanasia and abortion are like often linked very closely in debates. And the the, the I suppose the uh, morality of where you stand in them is, is sort of similar, where like it's ultimately about kind of like making a really hard choice versus, you know, I, I either think this is like, you know, a really hard choice, but people have the right to do it because it's their bodies and it's ultimately, they think it'll be ultimately for the best versus you thinking, no, no one has a right to make that choice. You know, you like, there's uh, that wonderful you, line that, uh, granny Weatherwax has that like, I think sums this up so easily. And it's such a poignant line where she just says, uh, to judgment is to be you know to be human is to judge yeah and yeah. that's like that's that's it like i mean you can't just like you know have a cover all kind of legislation or series of events here that um you know that just says okay this covers everything i'm just going to tick this box and that applies to every situation you are a human being you have to be able to judge and contextualize every situation which is why um yeah i mean it's i'm surprised how relevant this book was yeah, in the current yeah, time. I, really I, I know nothing about what Pratchett's views were uh, with reg- uh, regard to abortion or whatever else. It's kind of a less of a political hot potato in the UK where mm-hmm. they've, had, they've had it for the, the last few decades. But um, but it's it's very, I, I feel it's, it's very valid to do a pro-choice reading of, of this book and particularly that whole bit with, with Granny Weatherwax at the start. And when like you know when I say stuff like pro-choice reading I don't want to make it seem like this is just political point scoring where I'm just like oh cool this book from this author I like is sort of like endorsing this cause I feel strongly about I think it's just really movingly uh, tensely written like like Mm. I was like almost literally on the edge of my seat reading that bit of Beth and you know going to Mrs. Ivy and I couldn't remember um, I couldn't remember it at all or how it uh, you know how how it turned out so I mean it's just I, I, I don't know, maybe if you read this and you felt really pro-life, you'd feel really uh, 
put out by that or discomforted, but I, I feel the way it's written feels very consistent with Granny's character mm. and just a bit like it, um, very, it, it's written very movingly and tensely, yeah, uh, and yeah, yeah, intriguingly. Um, so we're saying a lot of uh, really positive stuff about this book, right? Um, but there are flaws. I was about to say there are flaws, and like. When we went through there, we um, we kind of made the decision to issue the the idea of uh, Steve writing up a, a plot summary and reading that out beforehand with uh, the two of us as we have for the last few episodes, just kind of like work like working our way to recounting the plot, which we thought made for more standard, less stilted, more spontaneous, also help kind of refresh our memories. But it is telling that as we both try and uh, work our way back through what what details we. Uh, emphasize versus what ones we didn't so there's a part of this plot we didn't mention at all when we were going through that uh, that uh, we were recounting the plot start of this episode do you, do you know what it is is it Knack McFeagle yeah yeah we didn't mention them at all and yeah. it, I think it does kind of like I, I liked them uh, and they later turn up in the, the Tiffany Aiken series to as I recall um, pretty entertaining effect but it's sort of telling that we didn't um, mention them uh, in, in the least here yeah the Knack McFeagle they're an interesting part of this I mean as you said, I like them as well, but um, do you think maybe that might be in the context of the Tiffany Aiken books that you think it's a weak element of it? Or um, well, I've only read uh, We Free Men, um, so like, uh, I, but what I, what I mean is they feel sort of like um, like how Gaspo did in Moving Pictures, but more so, mm. where it felt like he had this idea for these characters and just really liked it and wanted to fit it in. And it's it's not quite a good fit for this particular book, but it'll come up later and seem much mm. more, um, you know, natural and a, and a better fit later uh, later on. Like like Gaspode kind of in the watch books interacting with Anua sort of makes more sense than than uh, where he is in Moving Pictures. But mm. he's still he's still quite prominent in Moving Pictures. Um, whereas it, the Fiegel kind of are off to one side for most of this, and then that they they bring Verence. Uh, Back, yeah, and I, I I like I like the sort of element of um uh how to put, like of him being this you know kind of weak need uh, sort of similar to mildly oats like in the sense of people kind of wanting their kings to you know not be just these just um, to be quiet and basically yeah, yeah. white do gooders and more <laughs> to be like kind of carousing and uh, so on um and I, I don't know like I'm, I'm I I feel like a little uh irked by that because it's this thing that runs through this book and sometimes it's more successful than others like I feel like it's, it's successful with Oats and, and sort of with the vampires but not really with Berenice where there's this sense of um, you know uh, people just want the kind of like uh, traditional upfront direct thing and uh, like any you know whether it's kings or vampires or um, mm. religion and any deviation from that is uh, you know either ineffective or morally suspect in the case of the vampires, mm. um, and like with, with Oates, as we said, it, it's really I, I think it's really well done. Like the idea of all of this kind of uh, all of the ephemera that has grown around omniism actually just distracting him from just doing the right thing. Yeah, um, which should be the core of like any you know any any religion. Uh, and with the vampires, it, like it, it's done well enough because the, the scene in Ezra, I think, is really effective in showing what kind of horrifying world they've done. Mm. But I, but I also think like the efforts to portray the old count as this kind of you know 
uh, jovial, um, like respected adversary of like, oh, at least he knew. And you think that does go a little bit too far? Yeah, he, he's still yeah. going out killing people. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I would have preferred it if it was like, um, what's the the name of um, is the long man in uh, Lords and Ladies? Oh, the the King of the Elves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think I would have preferred if it was a bit more like him, whereas not necessarily he's like this old uncle vampire character, you know, but rather like he's just this old force of nature, and you know, kind of. Don't cross him or anything, but you know at least it's a bit more fair. Yeah, like uh, I mean, he has that point where I, I like, I like at the time I like the dialogue, but in the context of the book, I don't think it works quite as well. When he's talking to members of the crowd, saying, "I remember your grandmother; she looked great in a nighty," or mm-hmm. "I remember your grandfather; he killed me fifty years ago." We still have the stake hanging above the mantelpiece. You know, it's it's fun dialogue. But you're right, it doesn't quite work. Um, yeah, the, the closest I think it comes to working is where Granny says something about how like, the people need the vampires to keep them under, to, to remind them that there are monsters. Mm. And, and there's something in that of, like, um, you know, again, of how the, the, the Magpire family are trying to obscure that this is this really uh, horrible thing and it's this struggle between kind of man and monster. They're trying to mm. turn it into this, you know, just like nice almost like like semi-industrialized uh, agreement um, and that having a kind of like force to, for the villagers to fight will uh, um, like like be better for them. It kind of reminds me of all this as an added time travel complication and there's a, a 70s Doctor Who episode, Genesis of the Daleks, where the Time Lord sent the Doctor back to before the Daleks were made to stop them from being created. Oh, and he has this moment where if he touches two wires off one another a bomb will go off in the sort of like nursery they have for the, the like proto Daleks and you know kill them and stuff for being made and he has this crisis of conscience where he's wondering if he uh, if he has the right to affect history which obviously isn't an issue here but it's more he starts talking about how how many planets and peoples have united against the Daleks and maybe like you know it, even though they're horrible yeah. like like they, they, they bring greater good that way and so I can kind of see it with the vampires there that it's like oh this this will this makes the people kind of you know braver and stronger and more united to have something to fight but it, it's still just I don't know it feels kind of like uh, like insincere and kind of silly to have this attitude of like oh yeah this, this horrible monster is much better than the polite monsters you had yeah um, it's yeah it's it's the fact that they're too polite and like it's almost I mean um, at one point Granny says at least he never pretend it was an arrangement but that doesn't feel right when the yeah. town comes in because it does feel like an arrangement with them. It's like, we all know this is fun and games. It's like the Hunger Games. Like, you know, it's... Uh, but it's, I, it's almost as if... Um, okay, this is a really grim comparison, but given that uh, you brought up the, the, the Me Too stuff, which, which is quite relevant, it's like if... You know how we often say that, like, a, wide, uh, a lot of this abuse, like, harassment has gone on for so long, is that, like, the classic image of a rapist with some like monster lurking in a dark alley and not you know someone that you know or, yeah, you know, yeah yeah do, doing it kind of bit by bit like sort of like in, in, in your work or in your home um, and that like the this is this big period of readjustment for like our, our, our culture and how we you know think of what constitutes abuse and it's as if you're like favourably comparing the, the, the rapists who lurk in alleys with the you know people who are like 
um, harassing or kind of like sexually abusing women at work. It's like, well, so like he was he was lurking in an alley, but he never <laughs> pretended this was a nice thing. Oh god! You know? Like, uh, like I, it's, that's a really grim thing, and I, I don't mean to mean like it, make, make light of it, but it it sort of is a similar thing where it's like, in, yeah, in a way it, because it's 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 the old count still is going around killing people. It's a very <laughs> ignorant way of looking at it, but it is also you know at least you can point the person and say. That's a rapist, or that's a monster. Yeah. At least we can say we know what that is. It's nice and simple, and we can just label it as such and try and keep it out of our lives. Yeah, it's not a case of you know like uh, Agnes who's in two minds of herself when she's talking to Vlad and like, well, you know, maybe we could learn yeah, to live yeah. with them, you know. And it's strange because I thought this was kind of a little incoherent, but it kind of works in the context of the book. Is she flip flops a lot in how she feels about Vlad? Like really? Like mm-hmm. there's times where she's thinking. He's absolutely grotesque, horrible. How could I ever even think of living with him? And then there's other points where she's like, he's actually very, very handsome, and maybe you know. So it's, it's, it's just everything's really murky. Yeah, so. I, and I do love that moment where she finally, uh, Vlad, I'd hold their coats. That's yeah, it's a great moment. <laughs> it's, yeah, but but yeah, I, I get what you mean that like the idea of having this evil, like if it's going to be there as a much more easily identifiable thing that mm. you can fight back on like, is better than it being this kind of murky, like, you know, maybe it's good and it'll sort of trick you and, you know, you won't know it's there. Like, in the sense of you have to pick between those two, absolutely, that makes more sense. But it's more like him himself being absolved from it, not like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, you've got to have a monster. You're better off having this monster out in the open, so to speak. Uh, Whereas it's it's just like like him, uh, uh, not as role as a monster, but him as a character, it's like, oh, yeah, he's a charming old-timer. <laughs> like, yeah. like what, what they keep calling him, like, a good sport or something. And just yeah, like, oh. which kind of, I think, it kind of skews the message a little bit, yeah. you know, because it makes you feel like, there's that point where uh, the guy in the crowd says, oh, we still have the steak hanging above the mantelpiece. He says, good man, very, you should be very proud. And he's, like, beaming and thinking, oh, yeah. the monster thinks I'm great, you know? Yeah. So it's it does skew the message a little bit. Um it's it's tricky because I think if you did make him a monster, it would be a little bit reminiscent of Lords and Ladies, and I think that's why uh, he didn't go down that route to kind of avoid that from happening. And also, yeah, it's a lot more fun to write the dialogue. That would have been that would have been a fun twist for an extra confrontation at the end, where like you have Igor nostalgically reminiscing about him throughout, and that he mm. revives him, like he'll put things right. And the only view of him we've had so far is from Igor and kind of from the other magpies dismissing him. So yeah, it's very old fashioned. And then he comes out and he's horrible. <laughs> he's just mm. this, this, this like utter threat that you know the witches have to to uh, to put down. And you know you suddenly as a reader will be realizing, oh shit, yeah, we've just we've just been believing Igor when he's mm. been talking about this guy, but, but like he's hardly the most balanced observer. But sorry, I, I got off what I was talking about. With, you have the team with Varence too, where it's kind of like, oh, people don't want their kings to like mm. actually care about what happens in the kingdom. And it's, it's less of an issue really because it's such a small part of the book and the bits are quite a bit like funny about him being this like Prince Charles type, you know, trying really hard to take an interest and everyone's mm. just like, oh yeah, whatever, just like stand there, stand there and wave. That's your job as a king. Um, but it kind of feels like like the uh, the whole plot of getting him with the fegal and they drink he drinks their brew and then gets like really you know goes goes into kind of beast mode and it's like feels like an effort by Pratchett to try and bring some resolution to like uh, like Varence being in a, like a similar position to so many other characters that are kind of caught between two fences of like the you know really extreme horrible way versus kind of the like ineffective way he's he's currently doing it and it's just i don't know there's not enough there for it to really feel yeah satisfying like like even when you think the 
like in the end he kind of reclaims the castle from those the guards the vampires left behind and it's sort of symbolic of like oh just the king literally uh reclaiming his castle um but also it's, it's like well who the fuck cares about those guards at that point anyway like you know we know once the the magpires are defeated those guys are going to be toast like mm. either granny and nanny will make mincemeat of them um or they'll just like you know skive off anyway like we don't we don't need to see them be yeah. so it the whole like, having the Fiegel there having them uh give him their brew it's like oh it doesn't really feel necessary likewise the phoenix too mm. um well i think there, there's a very nice thing going through it of folklore as kind of inhibiting or a prison uh like obviously very obviously with the vampires where they're kind of are liberating themselves from the idea of garlic courting them or sunlight or so on but also with the witches having they suddenly have to uh, find themselves having to fit into these archetypes of maiden mother crone that some of them aren't entirely well suited mm. for and then with the phoenix where they keep maintaining oh there can only be one and then it's just like nah that's just something people that's that's mm. a myth this is the reality um, so there's it is there's, there, yeah there, there's a bit of it there's a bit of it there but it's also like I, I, I don't know what the, what the point of it is like again at the end the phoenix kind of swoops out and kills all the other vampire flunkies mm. that are um, you know with the vampires but it doesn't really feel like that's necessary from a plot point of view because it's like you know the big deal is to count and to a certain extent his like you know Vlad Lacrimosa and uh, I can't remember the, the mother's name but uh, I think she's just referred to as mother of the countess I don't I think she's ever actually like, I feel like name. she gets one name at once but either way you know like like once you know once they get defeated then like uh, all's going to be like right so mm. you don't really need to find a way to defeat their guards and defeat the, their you know vampire flunkies and yet there are these big uh, elements of the book that just seem to be like seem to be there to like that's their ultimate purpose is yeah. the Phoenix defeats the other vampires the, the Fiegel help Varence defeat the guards and you know I feel like a lot of um, specifically uh, what you're saying about uh, Varence I, I do agree with you I think it's a little bit underdeveloped and they just felt well what are we going to say Varence was doing this entire mm-hmm. time and he literally just put something in just to say this is what was going on and it's entertaining to read um, I, I'll give it that even if it isn't particularly memorable um, I, you could read it I I I read uh, the majority of this book and that per- bit in particular uh, with the theme of perspective in mind and, you know, how people think things should be, you know, so obviously you can see it with uh, the vampires. This is what vampires are supposed to be like, um, but they're not acting that way, so they're acting out. So Varence, as you said, it's a case of what a king should be. And, um, yeah, I don't think it's so much... It's it's It can feel a little lacklustre when you think of, um, he, you know, he's liberating himself from you know the confines of his very calm collected king who's just interested in the people to being a brave fearless leader but you know that was essentially just a spell that was over him and it disappears you know really quickly um but i think if you if if we were to view this in a particularly favorable way i think it kind of comes down to um they're just displaying the kind of king that Varence can potentially be and he does have the potential to be this mm-hmm. brave fearless leader but he just chooses not to because he shows the people, like, while that can be good in some circumstances, like that, it also has a lot of uh, negative, uh, you know, uh, side effects. So, obviously, the fact, I think it's a Jason Og who he nearly breaks his nose by headbutting yeah. him at one point, and uh, everyone has lots of scratches and scrapes, and it's kind of more, although it's, it's very, um, they feel very, 
uh, what's the word, I'm like, n- nationalistic, or they feel very proud to be... Uh, patriotic? P- yes, they feel very uh, patriotic too, because of, like, he was, you know, he was like a flagship for them, like, yeah. in this battle, but I think they realised that... Um, they wouldn't want them to They wouldn't want them to be like that full time, like, and it's, it's kind of a way of just viewing something from a different perspective, you know, that, it, like, by showing Varens in this way, mm-hmm. it allows people to see the good side of the way he is normally. Now, that's looking at it from a very, yeah, very no, favourable way. I, I think I think there's something in that, because you obviously have to bit the end, then what else gives, I know, gives mass or whatever, for want of a better term, mm. where Varens shows up and all the townspeople are there and it's like, you know, he's he's apparently uh, asked them to show up, although it's sort of implied now he did as well. Mm. And they, they kind of, they, it seems like they listen to him more now, but, um, or like are happy he's just back to doing things like mm. just asking them to go along and hear this preacher talk. But it, it, it feels sort of like, I remember when we read uh, Men at Arms and you had the whole dog skill thing and we said like, it, like thematically it me, it matches up with a, a, like yeah, a lot of the, but it's just not the species, and, but, yeah. but, but plot wise it, it just runs parallel where, you know, yeah. like there's nothing... Angua kind of learns or does because of the dog's guild that affects the really affects mm. the, the main plot of uh, you know um, Vimes and Carrot and the rest of them trying to find who's using the gun mm. uh, and this sort of felt similar where like thematically the stuff with Varence and the Beagle and Hodgesire and the Phoenix kind of matches up with some of the chimes of some of the um, stuff in the, the main plot but like in just in a in a pure plot sense, it, it doesn't really affect them. Like you could, mm. you could easily kind of cut them off. There, I don't know. They aren't integrated as well. Yeah. Um, as as he does, like other times, like uh, stuff like like lords and ladies or feet of clay, where he's juggling loads of these different mm. elements and characters and ideas, and they all kind of manage to converge and you know tie into one another. Yeah, I do feel like that's to a certain extent that is Terry Pratchett's writing style though like he does like writing parallel stories that don't necessarily weave together it does happen occasionally mm-hmm. where it just works and he's like he's very, he gets very lucky it, I don't want to say lucky because that implies that it's not skillful but you know at times it just works really really well everything's integrated but I think he's okay with the idea of just like writing parallel stories and say okay they're thematically similar they don't need to merge and yeah admittedly some of them are more memorable than others but to a certain extent, that's fine, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're not the, like the worst thing in the world by any means. It doesn't jar. More aware because in the his best books, he manages to get them yeah. to converge, mm. and kind of because, well, like with with these, they're sort of like a gesture at making them plot relevant by having like, oh, well, this whole thing with Rens is to get rid of those fellas back at Lonker Castle where you're wondering what they were doing, or mm. the, the Phoenix is going to get rid of the rest of the vampires, you know, like yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. sort of an effort to make it seem like. It's a bit All of this is culminating towards the, the one thing, which is the defeat of the, the Magmars, mm-hmm. but it uh, doesn't entirely do it. It's not, the, it's not the most glaring thing in the world, but it sticks out to me when, like, say, you know, reading it uh, yeah. in sequence and, and seeing it done better in other books. I think um, that, if you don't mind me saying, I think uh, part of the reason that I feel it's a bit easy to gloss over is because we've come straight after The Last Continent, and I feel like every flaw that we have uh, <laughs> yes. in this book is like 100% accentuated in that. Like, I was reading through it, and do you know the part where um, it makes up a good chunk of the book where uh, Granny and Mighty Oaks are trekking through, like, the Boglands and yeah, the Moors yeah. trying to get to Uberbald? And it's a huge part of the book, and it's one of the, possibly the best bit, I think, in my opinion. I think it's great. Um, but you can see how, like, they're struggling. Like, they're they're going on a bit of a journey, and everything they're doing, they're kind of doing themselves. Like, um, Om creates fire, so he does something. 
to allow the journey to continue. You know, like they develop, they mm-hmm. they their characters with like arcs. Whereas Rincewind, I was thinking back on like, okay, so Rincewind's story is basically one big trek, but the entire thing is a massive Deus Ex Machina. There's very little he does yeah. that isn't just like you know, it's isn't that like mystical kangaroo coming in and says, "I'll help you here," or someone like someone else coming in and I'll help you here. You know, it's yeah. just, he doesn't really do anything for himself. Things just happen to him, which I think he says himself. But it's the reason his character isn't as interesting. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I hadn't uh, thought of those in in direct contrast, but I think you're absolutely right because, like, it, it's well, he has no one to talk to and nothing really to say if he was talking to him. So, whereas mm-hmm. this, you have not only Granny and Oates having to struggle and do things themselves. But they're also talking about really interesting things and are progressing as people because of it. Where is he? Yeah. Just like, you know, running around hoping to get out of it all. Um, it's also I, just uh, I keep going back to the theme of perspective because I just think it's really relevant here. Is um, the fact that uh, Granny Weatherwax almost forces her own perspective in that she's helping Michael Oates, Oates across the uh, the plains, yeah. whereas every just about everybody's like we all know that he's the one who helped her because it's one of the few times where she's really at a loss here like she's really um you know just not at full strength so she needs a helping hand but nobody's willing to admit that mm-hmm. even if they know it you know so um and also the yeah. but um going back to like the theme of perspective like there's so many ways that it's in, that is integrated into the plot like the gnarly land is a great mm-hmm. bit where you know they go through this uh this part of Lancre where like magic has been caught. I love how they kind of compare it to, you know, like when air gets caught up mm-hmm. underneath like plates and it can cause, you know, rumblings or earthquakes. This is when magic gets caught up uh, beneath the land and it causes it to, I don't know how they describe it. Basically it's a, for, it's a, it's a natural TARDIS, isn't it? It's, it's bigger <laughs> on the, the inside than it is. On the outside. <laughs> but uh, apparently depending on what was, it? they have the little tiny stream there mm-hmm. and depending on the mood you're in, um, it changes uh, its perspective. And that's, that's, I, I really like that because that is a bit reflective of a lot of things. Like, um, for example, do you know, um, I'm trying to, okay, this isn't quite the, probably the best example, but, um, I always think whenever I'm going to the shops here, it's always about like 15 minutes walk, which is nothing. I'm going to go later today and I'm like, I'll be a nice stroll. But like if it's raining or if I'm in a bad mood or if I'm hungover, I'm like, <laughs> that seems like a trek of epic proportions. Yeah. <laughs> like just to pick up like a carton of milk, you know. <laughs> so um, it's interesting that, you know, they bring it into that. Like it just it just feeds into so many different parts of the novel, which I, I really, really like. Yeah, um, and it's... Uh yeah, it's a good concept. I thought that maybe it comes up in one of the Tiffany books later, but I, I, the gnarly land. Yeah, I, I couldn't say maybe it does, but I feel like that's the only where it would. But uh, I, I don't remember any any time, other time. Okay, it's been so long since I read. The, I've only read the We Free Men. And I think I read Half of the Sky, but I don't really remember mm-hmm. either of them very well. So um, I don't think that they, they might do. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll find out as we go along. You said it fits in really well here, and it does. But I, like, I, I feel like it's such a good concept that could it could easily be used in another book. Mm. And oh, still, definitely, uh, yeah. It definitely feels like I think it might be. There's definitely some kind of magic area in the Wee Free Man, so maybe they have it in there. Yeah. Um, that's actually another thing with um the Nack McFeego in this. I actually, I think I prefer them as side characters, as central characters. I mean, it is they are interesting enough that they they actually can just about, in my opinion, carry a book by themselves with uh, Tiffany Aching. But um, I much prefer them as the way they are in this because I just find it really entertaining, the the language they use, that it's kind of half English, but not quite. Like, sometimes you're... You can you can 
generally get a very good sense of what they're trying to say, even if it's not 100%. Um, I love the fact that they call people big jobs. That's like yeah. favorite, my favorite term that they use. Um, but well, you, there were points that between them and Igor, with his kind of the phonetic way he's written to uh, illustrate his, his list, I just found myself at points like getting annoyed. I was like, oh, why are there so many characters in this book that I have to like, you know, that I have to concentrate so hard to, to figure out what, they, what they're saying. It is mo- it's mostly Igor, I think. I don't really mind the act with Fiegel because I think you are just supposed to get a sense rather than actually yeah, know yeah, what they're saying. Yeah, that's true. But often it isn't too important. There are one or two words I remember that I was like, wait, what is that word? Like, there is one, I can't remember what it is, but there's like, he lists like three times that one one word, and I'm like, "What the hell is he saying there?" Like, uh, I do love his dog though, Scraps. Scraps yeah. The best name for like Igor's dog. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Actually, I love the fact. Death at the end. I love that Igor is brought in here, and um, Igor's like show up a lot more. I think they they get an Igor in the watch. Yeah, yeah. I think. Oh yeah, they get that in the next book actually. Don't I think they? so. Yeah. Yeah, and like, you can tell this is one of those points where Terry Pratchett just hit gold. It's like, oh my god, this is so much fun to write. I'll have to use him in like he's in so many books after this. Or yeah, there's loads ones. of them. There, I, I remember there's like one rebellious one who does a lisp uh, because he thinks like it's so cool, Dad. Oh, that reminds me of um, the trend that's working through this. The kind of like inverted goths that they have yeah <laughs> that uh lacrimosa's friends like uh oh she was called morticia but i think she's going by susan now or uh what was it or i can't remember i'm gonna say bride even though i know they'd never be called bride Wear bright colors and becoming accountants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we don't we don't we don't talk about him not even they drink wine it's not cool <laughs> i think that's great that's a I, I i almost wish there'd been a little bit more of that but i understand that they can't really dedicate too much time to these inverted gods. Um, did you think, like, I, I, I wasn't sure to make my mind on this, but uh, I really get the sense of, and, and maybe I'm wrong, although I, it's not so long ago we read Masquerade, but I feel like like Agnes's dual personality with Perdita is much more pronounced here mm. than it is oh, in Masquerade. Like, like, in, like in Masquerade, it's, it's kind of like, sort of what she wants to be and, and and it's like like a kind of label she's given to to certain aspects of her personality and here it's full-on almost Jekyll and Hyde type uh, I think that's an active decision on Terry Pratchett's part because I think that he decided okay like it, it works for the plot mm-hmm. so I don't think the plan was during Masquerade that Perdita was going to be yeah. uh, this dual figure she was just more like a fun internal monologue and say hey let's give a name to it like you know that makes it interesting so it's, I think it's ever so slightly jarring. Not too much. Yeah, it is when you're like, oh, okay, this is, you know. Uh, yeah, like if you, were, if you were to jump from Masquerade to this, you would notice it straight away that, okay, Perdita is an actual character, not like just someone that, you know, uh, Terry Pratchett has given a voice to. And it's, it's not bad because enough time has passed between the last book and this book that you don't really notice it. But because we've read it in such quick succession, you know, it's jarring for that yeah. reason. To be honest, I, I, I found it quite well done because when I started reading it, I, I was like, oh, this this does feel very jarring. She wasn't like a, a voice in Agnes's head to mm-hmm. this extent in, like she didn't seem to have sentience uh, in Masquerade the way she does here. Yeah. But as the book went on, I just found myself kind of enjoying their uh, exchanges. I, 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 I thought, I don't know, I thought it was a bit much when Agnes is replying to her out loud and other mm-hmm. characters get confused and I just thought, I don't know, it just sort of felt cliched, like... Um, and cliched and kind of like uh, as well like like Agnes as the kind of person she is while she is in two minds 
she's also very sensible and determined and I feel like mm. she she would have developed a better way of like managing how she converses with Perdita Don actually talking out loud and people being like who what you know who she's yeah. talking to um it's it's to be fair it's I, I think I remember it happening towards the end when she's been bitten by Vlad so maybe it's like she's sort of all over the place in general because she thinks she's becoming a vampire but she's actually becoming I don't know she's a, a temporary weather wax yeah um but but I like I remember that sort of I, I don't know it just felt quite uh, cliched the idea of like talking out loud to yeah. this voice no one else can hear uh, a small grey alien that only Homer can see <laughs> I do feel <laughs> but, but overall I uh, overall like, I quite like their exchanges and I just like how it's used to kind of work out things like the, the different ways they think about uh, Vlad and the idea of like Perdita that only hates him Magnus loathes him and <laughs> I do feel that um, her arc in this is a little incomplete, though. Um, I, if I'm if I'm right, uh, I think this is the last book that features her, isn't it? Yeah. So it doesn't really feel like she's achieved much, you know, because even if you think about the very very end of the book, where uh, Granny finally falls back and she can relax, she's like, ah, make the tea, Magrat. And Agnes is about to get up to do something, and she's like, no, sit down, I'll do this, yeah. and it's almost like it's reverted back to the original three. Where does that leave Agnes, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, the entire point of Masquerade was her accepting her place among the witches, but now it's almost like, yeah, but now, like, you're kind of on the outer coven of witches, you know? It's uh, it's strange that, at that point, it was Magrat who told Agnes to sit down to make the tea. Mm-hmm. I almost think it should have been the other way around. I think that, at that point, Magrat should have got up, and Agnes is like, no, yeah, yeah. I'll make yeah. the tea. That would have made a lot more sense, I think. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what's shows it is that like this book doesn't really have a main character and uh, you could argue that a lot of witches books don't it sort of juggles it between I actually think the back gets it right I think Mightley Oates is like probably the main character in this yeah he has the strongest arc I think he does but uh, even in terms of page time though you spend a lot of time with other yeah. people like I mean you're right he kind of has this like uh, protagonist style progression but um, but like with with the three witches and and neither they, like Granny, I suppose you know, kind of like does reach a certain amount of um, uh, inner peace and contentment with her, you know, her role as this person who makes these difficult decisions. Mm. But the rest of them, if you think of it, like um, we had the first three that see McGrath progress a lot. Like uh, like yeah. you you have them. I mean, interacting with what were usually like really fun and compelling plots, but also it was like. McGrath for lot, Granny in Witches Abroad confronts her sister and then sort of confronts this idea of like that she could have been that evil mm. in Lords and Ladies um, like Granny's obviously you know uh, confronting the idea of her becoming sort of senile and hated and this figure of derision and McGrath's getting confidence and Nanny in, in them sort of helps to, both helps the two of them along by she's a much more grounded kind of knowing character who mm. sort of realises what they're both about whereas here yeah, Granny does have something to an extent, but Agnes and and the others, in fact, really don't because they're just spending all the time juggling what archetypes they should be mm. in. Like, if you think when when uh, when Nanny is just like, oh, we just get Esme down and it'll all be all right, it's very un Nanny like that. She's she's kind of like all over the place trying to uh, resolve this in a way that, like, I mean, she's the one in Lords and Ladies who goes to the uh, you know gets the the King mm. of the Elves. The, from the long man to to fight the the queen, she, yeah. you know, in witches abroad, she's kind of like there, sort of uh, as a buffer between McGrath and Granny's arguments, but also helping uh, Granny's plan to defeat Lilla. Um, and here she's com- sort of completely at sea, and she can't really be that sort. Of, she doesn't really have that role of 
helping the other characters on 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 where they're going because yeah. they're not really going anywhere. As you said, uh, like McGrath, I, I found it uh, really enjoyable to read that she is more sort of comfortable and mature and confident. Yeah. Um, but that means that she doesn't have m- m- anywhere to go in this novel. Ironically, she's... she she really is taking on uh, Nanny's role in a way. Yeah, she's the helper in this one. Like she kind of helps Agnes progress. She helps uh, she helps Granny progress to a certain extent, and she even to a certain degree helps uh, Varence uh, progress, even by the merit of her not being around when he needs to yeah. kind of deal with things. So she is the helper in this situation. I think you could say, I mean, again, this is a very liberal, optimistic view of things, but it could tie into the whole idea of them adjusting to the the archetypes and how, you know, they always function in previous books. Mm -hmm. So Nanny, she's just doing like a poor version of Granny's job, like going around trying to do things, but because she's not used to it, it just comes across as faltering. Now, again, that's a very, very optimistic way of viewing it. There's something in there. Um, uh, uh, I, I suppose what where where it falls down a little is with Agnes because she's the one who isn't in a different role. Yeah, uh, she's well, she is different. in Magrat's role. Yeah, but she was in that in oh, Masquerade yeah. kind of you know like well by the end of it like that was her getting mm-hmm. there. Um, maybe she's kind of discomforted by the the others being in these different roles, but like her whole thing with with Vlad and the decision of you know uh, I suppose not to fall into like not to be tempted by him. But then uh, try and figure out. Well, does that mean I have to? I have some responsibility to like reform mm. him uh, or not? Uh, and I, I sort of like it's. It's that you know that old cliche of like, oh, women are attracted to bad boys because they mm. want to change them. And I like that even when her uh, rejecting on kind of defeating him means not giving in to like you know his way of things she doesn't feel this like now it's my job to help you it's like because why should it be you know he's he's an amoral asshole because of him she has yeah. no like obligation to do it. but the problem but, with that is that there's no follow-up to that like yeah you know, she, say, she, she said right okay so she's rejected one path but what's the other path yeah she goes through all of that but she's sort of the same person she was at the start of the mm. novel anyway like it's like you know, she's kind of Agnes juggling with Perdita, and then she has this dilemma of, like, you know, like, Vlad sort of, uh, Vlad's unwanted pursuit of her, and then she comes out of that, and it hasn't, yeah, hasn't really changed her. Mm. And in the one sense, Although, it's like, oh, I just want to change her. She's a, like, pretty, uh, like, good character, which is true, but it's also, like, it, it does make it feel, I don't know, kind of, like, lacking at the end. That, yeah, and unfortunately, uh, it is tackled in what I have to say is a bit of a lazy way. In that, uh, do you remember Perdita? She says after you know she's been essentially weather waxed. She says, "Oh, you've changed a lot." I says, "Okay, you're telling us she's changed. She hasn't yeah. actually changed, which is a bit unfortunate." Like, I mean, although I, I viewed that as, I mean, because Granny says, but the, the weather wax thing with the vampires that it's only going to be temporary anyway. Mm. Um, and I viewed that as for her as well. Like that's a hint towards like, oh, she's got this bit of Granny inside her. Like mm. you're seeing from the vampires the like superficial craving tea and so on, but for her it's like how she acts with the, the villagers. So I, I didn't think we were meant to believe that, like, this is a big change, that she's going to be like this coming on. It's sort of meant to hint to us, because it is built up as a reveal, the idea yeah. of, like, what's going on with the vampires? Why are they acting like that? You know, mm. but, like, it's it's you get a good couple of scenes before Granny says it, so I, I thought it was more meant to be a hint in that direction. That's true, that, like, a, but you know, considering, a, like, the structure of the novel and the fact that this is coming in towards the end when we're supposed to be experiencing, mm-hmm. like, the culmination of their arc, uh, you know, it is the way it's revealed, that, oh, you've changed, like, I think 
you are supposed to be geared to think in that way, even if it's not explicit. You're supposed to think, oh, yeah, wow, so she's gone through something. She's changed. Like, uh, and again, it comes together in that, which is still a great line. It says, I'd even hold their coats while... Yeah, uh, yeah. And it is, like, it's in a certain sense, like, it feels satisfying, but when you step back and think, like, it, especially, I think it's the fact that we know there's nothing else after this for Agnes, mm. that we're like, well... You didn't really do much. You developed it more in far more in Masquerade than you did in this. And yeah, like, she doesn't get like a grand finale like McGrath did with yeah. Lords and Ladies. But um, taught her thing with Oates as well, like her sort of romance. I mean, I, I like that it's kind of subtle and low key, and that like you know, it isn't neither of their big stories in this book is about their attraction towards one another. Yeah, and it would sort have, of dare. It would have been a cop-out if it had been, yeah. like, sort of a romantic thing, because they don't interact enough, really, at all. For I mean, they do have that brief walk home from uh, Granny's house, and when yeah. they see the centaur and that whole thing, but it's not enough. Like, he spends too much time with Granny Weatherwax for her Agnes to be the focus at the end. Yeah, so like, the, on, the only kind of... Uh, bit that jarred with me or felt a bit unsatisfying is that they think of one another so little when they're apart yeah. like when he's with Granny and, and she's with the Vampires which in a way makes worlds of sense because of course they're both in these like really intense situations where mm-hmm. I have a lot to think about but then to be kind of reminded at the end oh yeah maybe they kind of have feelings for each other and I said like I, I like I think it's cool that it doesn't really become a, a big thing but it's there. It, it, it's nice it's, it's it, there. It, it, yeah it, it feels it feels odd that like if you're going to have that at the end that they don't you know, you don't throw in something in the bits where they're apart, where they at least like once or twice, you know, mm. think of one another a bit more often to, to plant that seed. I like it's it's a it's it's a grey area which yeah. the the book focuses on so much, and it's it's very satisfying that it doesn't become a thing. Yeah. I'm really really happy that that that, uh, that happens. Um, what else did I say? There's a um. Sorry, no, I thought I had something there, but I don't. Um, there's a few great, uh, just a few great lines. Like, one of my favourite lines in any Discworld book of all time is at the naming ceremony. First of all, the wonderful joke of, uh, I name you Esmeralda, note-spelling Margaret, <laughs> and she becomes note-spelling. But so much better, what I think is so much funnier is afterwards, Nanny says... Well, we did have a king once called My God, He's Heavy the First, <laughs> which is one of the funniest lines. I think Nanny gets some of the best lines in any Discworld book ever. She just gets so awesome. such a great line. Yeah, I, did, I didn't spot this, but at that scene, I, I someone pointed out a line where uh, Nanny and Agnes realize there's vampires there and decide to take care of them. And Nanny goes off and gets a bunch of like garlic canapes mm. um, to do it, which uh, implies the fun buffet the vampire slayer oh my god that's <laughs> wow that's um that's something <laughs> uh i'm gonna bring up twilight now because why not <laughs> it's so weird isn't it like the, the, the vlad agnes relationship feels like it's written as a response or a parody of the Edward Bell yeah, relationship. It's, <laughs> it's written about 10 years before it. I know, it's absolutely bizarre. But I he love finds it. her fascinating because he can read everyone else's minds like a troll school, <laughs> but, but he can't do it to her. You know, like it's like, oh, she's this act like plain girl who doesn't find herself attract, uh, very attractive. Except in this case, Pratchett actually commits to that where I guess <laughs> it's like, you know, like this kind of like... Um, Overweight girl with uh, with really good hair. As yeah. we're being told. Um, I like too that that doesn't feature huge. Like I think Lacrimosa slags her a bit about being fat, but other than that, it's like 
you can have a, a fat character where it's not their whole the whole point of them is yeah, that they're fat or that you was know. one one of the drawbacks of Masquerade that there was a bit too much emph- I mean I think you needed that yeah. to establish like she had uh, issues with self esteem so I think that did need to play into it a lot but I'm glad that it wasn't such a big deal here like, yeah yeah like having had Masquerade and that you know mm-hmm. kind of like yeah I suppose like done painted a portrait of what it was like to be like you, you know. Uh, an overweight teenage girl pretty well you don't need to retread that ground so yeah. so I like that but again it's it's the contrast with Twilight where you know kind of uh, Bella's like oh I'm, I'm so plain and pale and nobody likes me but everyone and like everyone finds on. her attractive <laughs> yeah, played by a really attractive actress in the film you know yeah it's um, a much nicer contrast like here it's uh, it's it's so refreshing it's refreshing that like both Mike Leotes and Vlad both seem like really intrigued by her and it's very much for her mind which I love I think that's a great yeah. like a uh, a great aspect of this book, like it's it's fantastic. But him being such a creep, like in you know in, in mm. Twilight, isn't it? Like he watches her while she's asleep, and it's like, oh, that's so romantic. <laughs> Go yeah, on, that's <laughs> the thing. It, it is like a response to that. It's like saying, like uh, we're doing in some ways like a very similar story but whereas uh, Twilight tries to make it, uh, oh yeah, here's all like the plus sides of vampires, and like this book just kind of says, well. Yeah, you could look at it that way, but really, they're all creeps, like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, the only difference, I think, the big difference, I, I think I, I, ac- I accidentally watched the first Twilight film once. I thought it was a very different film when I was going into it, but um, if I remember rightly, I think they just like hunt deer or something, and they drink that. I can't yeah. really remember. But um, I think that's the key difference between that one and this one. Whereas Twilight, they oh well, we're going to have you like hunt animals instead of people. Whereas in this one, oh no, they're still eating people. But other than that it seems very similar. Like, you know, the vampires in Twilight, as far as I know, are trying to be, um, you know, they're trying to integrate into society and just, like, not be a threat. They're trying to be good. Whereas in uh, Carpe Juggalum, it's, again, they're trying to integrate into society, but the difference is they're not trying to be a part of society. They're trying to rule society. Mm-hmm. So, and I think there's a great, that great moment where... Uh, uh, Granny says, uh, I know uh, you don't really need to drink blood. All you drink is power over people. Yeah. Which is a, a very nice line. And it's, uh, I feel like it's, it's very striking in, in, the, in that uh, particular scene. Um, it definitely comes across that way. Because yeah, they don't drink blood that often. They never really establish the rules for the vampire in how um, often they have to drink blood. Yeah. yeah I, I think at one point with es- when they're in escrow, they say something like, how you know this happens twice or three times a year or something yeah uh, I think but, but, it, but you're not sure whether they're going out to other villages around their dominions you know mm. and, and like so maybe they you know whatever they're going to escrow two or three times a year but they're also going to other and you know yeah. it's once a month or whatever can we talk a little bit sorry just one thing I absolutely love is um, and this this might you might not love this as much as I have simply because I've seen so many ha- hammer horror movies like with uh, Dracula in it the the way the Count has his castle set up with Igor saying, okay, the hinges have to creak for like about three seconds yeah. after the door is open and you have to have a bunch of like wooden structures that can be easily like turned into uh, <laughs> that's, or into uh, religious symbols. I'm like, yeah, because like nearly every single Hammer movie involving vampires always involves like easily tear away curtains like revealing sunlight or like, uh, you know... Uh, piece of a wooden beam that can so easily be turned into a cross and I love the fact that he tackles that it's just great <laughs> yeah um, I also like how do you remember when we were talking during uh, Witches Abroad 
how, oh, there's that one vampire in there, and we were like, how is it that this one vampire is taken down by Grebo and, like, not really, we don't really even think about it at all, it's barely part of the plot, but we managed to get a whole plot out of this one. I think we got the question, our question answered by that. Like, I mean, I think I, to a certain degree, had forgotten how much the focus is on modernity and uh, breaking free of, like, vampiric uh, stereotypes. Yeah, so. they, they kind of obliquely reference it about, like I said, like how easily other vampires would be defeated. And mm. But I think I think the vampires are a bit of a, uh, like, the way they're done, while there's a lot good about it, they're, they're sort of part of one of my main preservation series, but this kind of structuring of them as villains... Is is a bit all over the place. Like like I feel like they they gain power so easily and so quickly yeah. in Lankara. Like the the idea of you know oh well once Ferenc has invited them like that's all it takes. Whereas it, it doesn't have the it, tension that Lords and Ladies yeah, have. Cause like yeah. that was a good solid build up. I mean it wasn't until the third act that you felt like wow they're all in control. But in this one it's like by the end of the first act. Yeah, and Lords and Ladies, you have these like incredibly powerful creatures in the elves that are, you know, going to be like threat to Lundgren, not humanity itself. And it's like they can only appear at a certain time. Mm. It only occurs every now and again. And then even when that's happening, they sort of have to kind of possess slash entice Diamanda <laughs> to do it. And then Granny and Annie think they've stopped it. And then Jason and uh, his lot of uh, the kind of Morris men end up like accidentally... Mm. bring out the elves so you know it, it, I feel like to it kind of justifies why they're so powerful and such a threat but you know only come out now whereas with the vampires you think oh like all that was stopping them from coming to Longra was they were waiting for an invite why weren't they like you know plotting some way to get invited before this where they like you know the count just starts like writing to Varence saying like oh hi pal I'm from a neighbouring kingdom you know mm. God, love to come over and visit your your kingdom sometime. You know, uh, it, it feels really weird that once they're there, they're able to instantly take over, and they were apparently just always hanging around. Yeah, it's it's very odd because I mean, even as quickly the first time we talk to them, you can see Nanny is completely under their spell straight away, and it feels a little anticlimactic. You'd like to think that Granny would, or sorry, Nanny would have uh, some kind of better defense. Um, I also find it really unusual. I don't know what your thoughts on this. Do you know when they find Granny in the cave? And uh, Nanny comes back in, say, oh, I've lost my pipe, so she can yeah. have a proper one-to-one with uh, Granny. And she says that, um, sorry, Granny Weatherwax says that I, I can't beat him. You know, I can't beat him. Like, do you, I think at that point she's being really genuine there. Yeah, but we haven't had any, like, that's that's the first time we find out, you know? Yeah, um, but that's the first time we've ever, I think that's the first time we ever see Granny really at her wit's end. Like, I mean, I mean, she's physically going through the ringer later on in the book, but at that point... She's really, she genuinely seems stumped. Yeah, and, and she's I, in hiding. So. And, and I feel like dramatically, I'm not sure if it if, if it works. Where on the one hand, you do like it does set up this nice thing where you know the vampire spear, uh, and they they very quickly and easily are able to like control or defeat Nanny and uh, Agnes and McGrath and everyone else in Lankra. And they're like, oh, if only we can get Granny. And and you know it's kind of built up to like, okay, well, once they get Granny, things will be mm-hmm. okay. And then to to have the kind of rug pull out from under your feet by when they finally get her, and she's like, no, I can't do it. But it also like so I I think that's that's kind of cool. Like it's kind of like sort of I suppose a dramatic feint that works well. But it also feels a bit tell rather than showing because mm. you know she just says, oh yeah, I tried, and he attacked me, and you know attacked me in my own cottage, and we're like, what? Wouldn't it have been nice to see that, you know, to kind of, like, yeah. would, would that have done a better job of conveying that, like, these guys are real threats than hearing, than just having her say, oh, yeah, I, I've already tried and they've, 
they've beaten me. My main issue with the whole thing is when uh, Granny comes out to confront them the first time. Mm-hmm. And it's... See, the problem is... Because we've been with Granny for, what, four books now, we know the way she thinks. And if she's going to confront them, you know, they, they try to sway you by saying, oh, every Weatherwax loves a showdown, no matter what. And you know, I think they're trying, Terry Pratchett's trying to get us to think that, like, she might be, like, losing. She might think she's definitely going to lose, but she's going to have a showdown anyway. But we know that's not the way Granny Weatherwax thinks. She's not going to have a showdown unless she has a plan. Yeah. So at that point, it almost feels like, oh, okay, she's back on form now. And the threat feels, like, a little bit mitigated. Mm-hmm. Even though, um, now, we both read this, so we know at that point she does have a plan. But I'm pretty sure the first time I read this, at that point, I felt, oh, okay, so Granny Weatherwax is back everything's fine now. I think I would have liked if it had been more of a case if the vampires had somehow found her. Mm-hmm. Like, if they had managed to get into the gnarly grounds and said, okay, we found you now. And said, oh, wow, this would have been a little bit tense. They've actually managed to... Like you said, like it would have been great if there had been a moment where the vampires seemed to genuinely overpower her as opposed to just telling us this is sort of happening. But I think it's... Um, it's a very delicate balancing act that uh, Terry Pratchett's trying to do for us always to consider Granny Weatherwax this incredibly powerful figure, but also trying to make her somewhat humane. Yeah, it's like she's a lonely old woman, but she's also this terrifying force of nature. Yeah, so um, at this point, I think he leans slightly too far. Like, it's the most he's probably leaned into humane. It's this or Lord and, Lords and Ladies. Mm-hmm. One of those two definitely has like her at her most like vulnerable. But... Um, I feel like in this one he leans a little bit further with like the whole her being overpowered, but still not far enough. I would have liked to see more of it. Yeah, yeah. She goes through the ringer physically, but I would have liked to see more of the mental kind of breakdown a little bit. I mean, in fairness, he seems to realize it because obviously she stops becoming a main character after this, so he kind of seems to realize as great as a character as she is. You can't go you, much you can't further. Go, yeah, much further. And I do feel like like so much of this is like her when she does show up to the vampires and. Um, I, I know what you mean about kind of feeling like, oh no, she's Granny, of course, she's going to have a plan. But I, I feel like it does do a good job of she's really physically weak and swaying mm-hmm. and you you are kind of made to consider, oh yeah, we've been hoping for this confrontation. What we've been really hoping is that this like old woman who's been living up in the mountains is going to come down and defeat these vampires and maybe, you mm-hmm. know, that is going to turn out well. But I just, I just feel like the whole, that element of like vulnerability is just done so much better in lords and ladies and coming after lords and ladies yeah you, in terms you, of her mental state yeah in this one i think it's much <laughs> i found i found myself uh, considering lords and ladies and uh, carpe jugalum uh as a bit like the dark knight and the dark knight rises because <laughs> you know like because uh, you know it's sort of thematically similar like uh, there's a lot of questions being raised in the dark knight and that's why it, we always go off into like superhero movies, don't we? But you know, it's why like a, I think The Dark Knight is a much better movie because it raises a lot of mor- uh, morality and ethical questions. Whereas The Dark Knight Rises, it's kind of all about physicality and pain and that sort of yeah. thing. For I mean, there is a bit of psychological of an element there, and same here. But uh, I, I don't want to get too far off it. I, I think the main problem with The Dark Knight Rises is that like it does raise questions and then doesn't answer any of them but not well, only does this, this not only that answer, well. doesn't even attempt to answer it just <laughs> goes like completely in another direction yeah this is kind of those two with, with the likes of Agnes and all that yeah so it's I mean that's the thing because I mean yeah there's loads of problems we're not going to make this a uh, Batman podcast just yet but uh, yeah there are problems with The Dark Knight Rises but it's still a good film I think I mean definitely problems but you know enjoyable bits as yeah. well and this is kind of similar I think there's like it has its problems but overall I have to say it's it was more enjoyable than I was expecting 
when yeah, I was reading it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, it wasn't a lot of ways I said because I, I thought like, oh, how can you possibly do anything after like this for Lords and Ladies? But I just felt like it, it kind of sucked by comparison. And some of the structure, like the the bit when when the way Granny beats them with like them kind of taking her essence into them being filled, is really good. And I like that. Like it isn't kind of uh, a reveal where it's like. They're all apparently fine, and then she's like, "Aha! Actually, you've got me and you now." Like we see them begin to act like her, but I feel like I was on a bit too long, and it's kind of like reminded me of when we done Lords and Ladies. I remember you saying about like when you see uh, Hodgesar and Mister Brooks, who takes care of the bees, fighting back against the elves, and mm. sort of takes takes away a bit of their mystique before they've actually properly been defeated by McGrath and Granny and Nanny. And I thought, uh, I, I kind of agreed with you, but I also thought like those bits are very small, so they didn't mm. distract too much. And also I kind of tied into this whole theme of like the land kicking back against this, the elves' attempt to turn it into this like, you know, pre-modern, uh, like wild land that had been in their heyday. Um, whereas here, like, you know, we have the, the vampires in escrow and then they're, you know, the townspeople beat them up, and then they go back to the castle, and they're kind of made to look fools there, and, and it just goes on for so long that by the time they're meant to have to show them with Granny, I'm like, they've been completely reduced, you know, mm. and when she reveals how it's done, like, when she's like, oh, you, I ain't been vampired, you've been weatherized, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, well, of course, just put these guys out of their misery, they're pathetic at this point, you know, we have, we have to be more like, McGrath is in the, uh, the room, and the countess comes in in the form of mist and she just puts her in a jar and flings it down the toilet. I really like and that bit, actually. I, yeah. I, this thing, I like a lot of those bits in isolation, but just the way it's structured, like, they have kind of such a long descent from, mm. like, the uh, way they've been built up as these invincible villains that they just seem like, you know, it, it sort of reminds me of, like, um, uh, again, we've, we've already brought up, we've brought up, what is it, Doctor Who, Me Too, uh, uh, Batman, and now I'm going to compare it to like the, the structure of a professional wrestling match, where like the classical, <laughs> classic structure is you have like like uh, the, the the baby face, the good guy has a shine at the start, um, you know, or he kind of like, or or maybe you have a kind of tentative start, and then what usually happens is you 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 have the heat where the heel, the bad guy takes over, and like you know like it's kind of like has the, has the baby face on the ropes and almost beats them. And then the comeback where the babyface comes back and uh, um, like you know kind of overcomes the heel wins at the end, and that's like a really kind of archetypal match. Obviously, it's much like you no know, wrestling yeah. matches aren't structure, aren't you? That's real life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just all uh, just happened to work out that way. But that's that's how um, you know like uh, that's like a kind of like a very like wrestling one on one type mm. structure, and this feels like like that. But the babyface comeback at the end lasts way too long. So you go from like having the babyface overcoming this dominant heel and winning to the babyface just beating the crap out of his heel for like the last ten minutes of the match. Like, oh, like stop, stop, he's already dead. You know? <laughs> I will say though, while I do agree with you, one thing that I I, I think I might be um, disagreeing with you a little bit is the way that uh, Granny eventually defeats the vampires is a bit. I'm a bit iffy on, like, I love the idea of, oh, you've been weather-waxed, like, that sounds great, mm -hmm. but the actual, now I know, I'm aware that I'm talking about logic in a fantasy book that deals with vampires, witches, and a giant turtle carrying the world on its back, but still, I feel like it's very, like, kind of, uh, fuzzily explained, like, uh, like, what is the actual explanation, that Granny Weatherwax put a bit of herself in her own blood, and they invited her in? Yeah, like it's, it's, I think it's to do with that when, when they, um... 
Oh, like when they kind of reduce her to a sort of shell after feeding on her, mm-hmm. uh, McGrath and Nanny and Agnes all begin to wonder that, like, oh, she's obviously kind of done her borrowing thing to put herself away. Yeah. And McGrath refers to it earlier when she's like, she's always gives a bit of herself to someone else, and this gives her this kind of extra reserve to draw upon. So they begin to speculate. They think it's like, um, you know, the baby Esme, and and then uh, some think it's Miley Oates. Yeah. And I, I like that. Like the way, I like the way it's set up. That like, oh, is it a baby? And then you're thinking like, ah, no, Paradise got us right. It's actually Oates. And then it's a third way altogether. I also like the sort of moral ambiguity of the idea of like hiding in a baby. Yeah, and hiding in yeah. a baby. And that I liked. I liked that a lot because um, the great thing about that particular point is uh, Granny Weatherwax says, oh, Nanny, I think that because she's like a romantic, or sorry, I think it's Agnes who says that. And I'm like, I like the fact that if I was to suspect anything the first time I was reading it, I'd say the exact same thing. Because like, well, she's called Esmeralda. There's a parallel yeah. there. You and, know? and it keeps seeing references to her eyes, her like her mm. blue eyes. And um, yeah, like I like that. I feel it's like clever that bit. I'll give, it, I'll give it that. It's just, it's just the final bit. I feel it's, like, I mean, yeah, it makes sense thematically and going with the theme, like, uh, the way the plot goes, but it just feels like a bit, you know, I don't think they really explain it satisfactorily. Well, it's, it's like she's put her, that bit of herself into her blood rather than into oats or into the baby. So Dave mm. then taking that inside but her. Can you put yourself into blood, though? I mean, yeah, it's a living yeah. thing. So, I mean, I, I liked... Well, I li- she goes into animals. Yeah, I know, but, like, she likes... Uh, like, I like the whole thing with going into the bees more so because yeah. that sounds... That's, you know, that's built up a little bit. It's, it's impossible to, like, take over the hive of the swarm. Not, like, not even Granny Weatherwax to do that. It's like, oh, Granny Weatherwax did it. Way. But in this one, it's just like, oh, we'll just go into the blood. I mean, it just... I feel like it could have been explained a little bit better. Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't know. I, I, I get it. Like, I, I wasn't lacking for clarity on it, but I do feel like it feels like a bit of a, a retread of mm. the bees thing. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I take your point. That might have been... For whatever reason, like it, it clicked with me. But for you, if I was underexplained, and maybe other people bit. would, you know, share I, your view. I still love the idea of the vampires being weatherwaxed. I think that's brilliant. I just think the actual execution of it was slightly off. Like I'm not. It's not a huge thing. I really don't think like it's a massive, massive deal breaker or anything. I'm just like, if you could improve anywhere, that would be one of the key places. Like I'd focus on like just how it actually comes about in the end. Yeah, I, I do like too when she's kind of torturing them by having the, the cup of tea that she won't drink from, and then it isn't even tea. Do you know what? That reminded me of uh, you know Get Out when um, I haven't seen Get Out, but oh, okay, on. there's like there's a key bit in that. It's not really a spoiler, but there's a key bit in that where like there's a woman like stirring a cup of tea, and it's basically a use uh, used to hypnotize uh, the main character, oh, wow. and it's the exact same thing. Like she constantly stirring the cup and nearly drinking it, and not quite. It's oh, brilliant, but yeah, no, it's absolutely excellent. Um, yeah, it's a very that's a very good scene at the end. I always remember that bit. Mm-hmm. I think it's always good. Uh, you can always tell the good parts of a Discworld book when you're thinking back and you haven't read it in years, but there's certain parts you remember. Yeah. Like, uh, just for example, right, this is a slight tangent, but uh, I was just thinking of The We Free Men. I don't remember most of that book, but the one bit that I always remember is the bit where she has to select her man. Do you remember that bit? Um, is, is that one like like she thinks, uh, like well, Big Rob thinks... They're, they're gonna have to get married if she's the new Kelda. Yeah, and uh, the like, she gets around it by saying, "Okay, I will marry you when." And it's something like, what "Was it there's a bird who picks up a grain of sand and drops it on a hill like a couple of miles away? Once that's big enough, like to be the tallest mountain, that's when I'll marry you." Yeah, and it's just like it's a cool little neat bit. I just don't remember any of the rest of the book, so it's just like little bits like that when it's really well written, it sticks in your mind. 
So um, the bit with the tea is just one bit that always stuck out in my mind. In mm-hmm. Carpe uh, Juggalum is really, really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like there's there's kind of a lot of uh, I, I was just leaping through. I underlined a lot of stuff here that kind of like um, as you said, sometimes some of the I know like the morals or the team sort of plot like felt a bit like confused or uh, ill structured at points in this. But there's also just some like cracking lines that mm-hmm. reduce them to kind of really. Uh, simple but complex things so it's like uh, it's a thing that is said granny sharpie don't go spilling allegory all down your shirt <laughs> and then uh, don't don't trust a cannibal just because he's using a knife and fork that's great yeah, i love yeah. that line that was absolutely excellent yeah and then, like I, I said it feels a bit dodgy that like the old count is made to look so good by comparison even though he's also a monster but i also i i, I like i like the side of it that reflects on the, the magpires of like that the kind of the ways they have think of themselves and get other people to think of them that makes them seem less monstrous, this mm-hmm. veneer of civility and modernity, um, and just like pulling that apart and saying like, no, you're still evil, like you can't kind of mm-hmm. distance yourself from it. Do you know one thing, um, yeah. one thing that and I thought... And then there's, there's Granny's Crack, a uh, lovely um, scene is treating people as things, like that's, that, that's yeah, all. Like, I mean, again, it's, it's that classic Pratchett thing where when we say it, it feels so simple and obvious but it's expressed so well in mm. the in the books and by by a character where you really feel like like this is the the what the fifth book where granny weather writes in it she's just said that now but you really feel like oh yeah that's what she's always believed mm. you know and, uh, do you know um two more things i'm going to say one thing that i didn't like and one thing that i did um one thing that i felt was really it would have been so satisfying and it's a little it, it is a bit uh, unsatisfactory that it doesn't occur is I really really wanted Agnes to punch Lacrimosa in the face by the end of it yeah. you know uh, Lacrimosa she's just like one of these detestable characters that you really just want to see suffer and in the end she's just kind of like I feel like she deserved something else like Vlad had his moment where like uh, you know he's reaching out for Agnes yeah. and she's like oh I'd even hold her coats and uh, the Countess, she's a little underserved, but at least she gets like her own mm-hmm. different uh, death in that uh, Magrat drops You're her into right, the well. Yeah, of course, the Count gets his head cut and off. He gets his head cut off, but Lacrimosa doesn't, really doesn't really get anything. Yeah. She's just kind of grouped in with everyone else. And I just feel like it would have been a perfect moment for like Agnes to come in and give her a good box. I think actually that's another bit that feels like a little underwritten, although I realise this feels like a one of those very unfair criticisms where, oh, this isn't the book I want it to be. You yeah, know? yeah. But, but where she starts arguing with the Count at one point about like, oh, we'll always be your children and, you know, we'll we'll kind of never get our day in the sun because mm. vampires are immortal. And it feels like it's setting up for some kind of greater tensions between them. Mm. And and that felt interesting to me because it was like, if, if you're thinking of these as a sort of retread of the elves in a lot of ways, this is the element of uh, that. This is an element unique to them, you know, where the elves were uh, almost like a hive mind with the with the queen there, but like at uh, the center. Vampires are all competitive. Yeah, they're all individual. They're all competitive, yeah. and to kind of see them like like argue with each other and maybe kind of break off from one another, and um, yeah, I would I would have liked to get a little more of that, and I, I almost felt like like that's where she was going, because but as you said, she doesn't really get kind of finished off in any. Uh, distinct way was her you were, you were going to say something else the other thing the very very small thing I was saying what did you think of Casanunda's little cameo at the start 
<laughs> I like it. I actually have myself second guess. I was thinking, oh, is he is he in this one? Yeah, yeah that's why I was thinking. It's like, oh wow, like I remember he was in two. I don't remember him being in a third mm-hmm. one, but maybe I'm just mixing it up with uh, Lords and Ladies. But I actually, I, I really like that he wasn't in it, but he had that little cameo. Like I think that works very, very well. It'll just kind of almost remind you of like almost like a little reminder of what's come before. Yeah, and he's just like yeah. going by, and he's a uh, he's a highwayman now. It's just like it's a lovely succinct little glimpse into his life after Lords and Ladies I'm like that's great I, I'm, I'm all for that <laughs> um, but yeah that's 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 kind of uh, that's all I really uh, got we did have one question on Facebook pertaining to this book that oh, yeah. we should uh, probably tackle I just, I'll just dig it out here are you team Jacob or team uh, well a team Vlad or team uh, Oates <laughs> <laughs> Team Oates all the way. Oh, definitely Team Oates. <laughs> the great name, actually, as well. He, every now and then, you can see, like, one thing Terry Pratchett has a great knack for is names. Mm. And, like, the very extremely relevant Mighty, Mighty Oates is such a such a wonderful, like, uh, term for him. Okay, yeah, sorry, here. We have a question from uh, Crystal, who said, I was wondering if you would discuss potential vegan teams slash animal rights teams of Carpe Jugulum. Oh, yeah. Um, Terry seems to place emphasis on evil as being boiled down to reducing people to things. But as a vegan, that got me thinking, how is that different than what animals do to humans? Um, yeah, it's an intro. I mean... What animals ne- do to humans? Or what humans do to animals. Oh, right, right, okay. Uh, um, neither of us are, are vegan, unless you've made that decision in the last no, few days. Right. <laughs> uh, but it, it is it, interesting, Art, because... You have very much the you know seeing is treating people like things, and the mm. vampire is calling the, uh, the referring to the people as meat, um, and then there's also like the fact that through the canon of the disc world, you have a lot of very sympathetic semi anthropomorphic animals like Grebo, uh, yeah. the librarian. Obviously, in his case, he was a human, but now he's you know very much a an ape. Uh, uh, Gaspodes, scraps. Um, you know, mm. so you have kind of like like we're sort of reading this anyway. If if this in the first this world one you read where we're going to be like um, sympathetic to animals and you know often viewing them as characters. Yeah, it's 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 a tricky one. Like I mean, you can you can certainly make that reading all right. That um, I, I I definitely don't think it's something Terry Patcher had in mind when he was writing this. I mean, I can't really. I don't think there's really much of a message there other than like when the vampires refer to people as meat and even that that just feels like a retread of everything that was done before in previous vampire novels it doesn't feel particularly original or different so um, I don't think that's something well, he was angling for it kind of um, it, it got me thinking like because it's in the they start doing it at the escrow bit which uh, again is a sort of like industrialised yeah, sanitised form of evil where they've just got them all lining up and it made me think of like how you know I suppose how the meat we get in butchers, uh, or you know, arrives on our plate when you've got these like sheds full of cows on some yeah. assembly line that are you know just been uh, whatever about to be killed again. Like I'm, I'm saying, I was, I'm, I'm not a vegan or even a, a vegetarian, but I, I sort of feel it's, it's similar to what we were saying earlier with the, the pro-choice thing with Granny, where you don't know where Pratchett stands on it, but you can definitely mm-hmm. make that reading of it. And if yeah. like if it's something uh, like I, I'd imagine if you're reading this as you know as a a, a, a vegan or a vegetarian it probably I don't know uh, resounds with you all the more and kind of chimes with, 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 with your views where you feel like yeah this is this is sort of you know 
poking at some of the, the ways I feel the, the, the meat-eating world works. Yeah, I'd um, say so. I guess... Um, like, like there is, there, there's a line where uh, Granny says something about, um, uh, our, uh, we are vampires, we cannot help what we are, only animals can't help what they are, uh, said Granny. So, mm. like, you know, that's, you, you can read that so many ways, where, like, that's making the divide, where, like, well, like, then, like, animals are whatever lesser beings, which is, I suppose, what, like, as, you know, meat eaters, that's kind of what it's all predicated on. Like, you know... Yeah, but, yeah, but, no, but, I get where you're coming from But there, then on the, right. on the other side, there's also, like, that could be a kind of a, a rebuff to meat eaters, where it's like, well, you can't, you know, you can't justify you eating a, a cow or a pig or whatever else by saying, oh, well, you know, a lion would eat a gazelle, because, mm. like, you're not saying you're, you're like a lion, you know, and have that level of reason or, or lack of reason yeah um, i do think it's something that um terry pratchett deliberately uh well not possibly I, I don't think he invites that comparison like it's there there's no doubt that it's there i think it's impossible to have any story about vampires and not have like this mm-hmm. theme running through it and to a certain extent but i think he shies away from it a little bit and the reason i think that is that line that vlad has with agnes says uh, what do you eat? Oh yes, chocolate. You don't want chocolate turned into another Agnes. And he says if he wanted this theme to be in there, he could very easily have said like something like steak or you know. Yeah, yeah. Although I read that because like uh, she's expressed a fondness for chocolate before, mm. that's meant to be just like discomforting thing of like oh look he can get right into her thoughts like he pick, you know even though he can't quite control her like the others that he can he picked out this food she really likes rather than just saying, you know... Uh, yeah, but he did still choose to have that as the thing as yeah. opposed to, like, you know, big dinners or anything, you know, so... Yeah, but I, I think there's, like, there's ample material for a vegan vegetarian reading of it because Ab- of that. Yeah, absolutely. That the vampire's trying to kind of sanitize what, 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 what they're doing. Mm. Um, it's not something that resounds particularly strong for me because, like, like yourself, I'm not vegan or vegetarian, so... Um, I don't think I'd be well equipped to make this reading, yeah. really. I'm sure, like, anyone who was vegan would find masses of material there. Um, and, you know, like I said, it would, uh, any reading of a vampire, a text about vampires, it's very hard not to say it's not there. So, um, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, I think there's an element of it, but my personal opinion is that it's not particularly strong. You can make a lot out of it if you want to, but... Uh, I not that much of it jumped out at me, but I I understand and I can appreciate that's just my particular reading and it wouldn't necessarily be everyone's. So um, that that'd just be my take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that being that, will we will we get to ranking this fella? We might as well. I have the list uh, here. Oh, okay, so um, I suppose obviously now because of the way we've discussed it, I don't think this tops Lords and Ladies. Obviously, anyway. But I think having said that. I am I'm quite fond of this book I have to say like even though we did find lots of like little holes and things that could be improved mm-hmm. on it's a great book I think I'd rank it quite highly um, to pick another one at ran- what's the next uh, witches one after lords and ladies I think it's masquerade actually yeah that's a good comparison do you think this is best yeah, better than masquerade so masquerade um, I don't think it's better than masquerade I think like uh, masquerade is much um, tighter. tighter and also there's something very different with the the witches than we had seen up at that point whereas this mm. even if even if you really like it it's still retreading the, a lot of the ground that lords and ladies is on it is very it covered. is it is very much um like uh lords and ladies 2.0 it's kind of a case of if you like lord and lords and ladies you'll like this mm-hmm. um so yeah it's that now i i do really appreciate the fact that he was taking on a big big task like taking what we certainly consider to be the best uh witches book and 
at the moment the best Discworld book in general and trying to you know follow that up and he does a pretty reasonable job at it mm-hmm. so I mean there's a lot to be said for that but I do take your point and I do agree with you that I don't think it achieves as much as Masquerade does so what about Mort would you say it's better than Mort um, I don't know it's it's tricky uh, my, my reservation with Mort whenever we came to it was always that, that I felt the ending kind of right. a bit of a well, put, but put I, think the, I think the rest of Mort is really well structured and well paced and uh, you know like so on whereas uh, can we just put a pin in that yeah. just for one second there and we just, we'll actually instead just go to the next witches book and we'll because I find it's easier to go for yeah, whatever uh, yeah. whatever the characters are It's so the next one's okay, witches, witches Abroad, Abroad 11 better or worse than Witches Abroad I yeah. think it's better to okay. be honest I mean like Witches Abroad is great but we had a lot of issues with Witches Abroad even though it's very enjoyable there's serious issues in terms of like the villain, the themes, yeah. and uh, I, I feel though like I, I did they do share a big flaw in the, the structuring like in that Witches Abroad it kind of takes them ages to get to Genoa where the plot actually kicks off. Yeah. Um, Whereas this one, it's well, like it's, things happen so quickly and then it's drawn out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I kind of feel like I, I have the feeling of the, I have the, the strength of objection to the villain here that you had for Witches Abroad. Like you, you, you said you were kind of felt deflated by. Lily Weatherax just becoming a kind of generic, you know, uh, fireball hurling hysterical villain, <laughs> and, and and I I get what you meant in like that that particular moment where like you know where she kind of freaks out at the end, but I thought overall she works very well uh, as a villain. Mm. Whereas for me, like the the way the vampires just like as I said, kind of are reduced to a joke that just goes on and on and on. Mm. Like to the extent when you when you get that bit when the count grabs baby Esme, like there's just no tension for me at that point. I'm like he's not like. Even if I, I couldn't say whether I worked out or whether uh, I worked out the first time that, oh, he won't kill her because Granny couldn't kill her, which mm. is admittedly neatly foreshadowed in that bit when they're going through the gnarly ground and the kind of death traps are swinging down and Annie's like, no, it, it, mm. it, nothing serious is going to hurt us because Granny wouldn't hurt us. Um, but I, or she actually, she specifically said she wouldn't hurt the baby. So there's neat foreshadowing there. But I also just felt like, you know, even if, if uh, I hadn't picked up on that, if that wasn't there, I'm like, well, there's no way he's going to do anything now because he's just yeah. this, like, joke still, like, flopping around. Like, why are you making this this last bid for for relevancy as a, for relevance as, as a villain? Um, I do... My, my personal feelings on this now is that I think Witches Abroad, in some ways, is a more enjoyable read. That Admittedly, it does take ages to get to Genua, but everything up to that point is really enjoyable. It's almost like a little anthology yeah. of adventures that the witches are going on until they get there. But I feel like Carpe Juggalum has like a much better overall story, even if it's somewhat mishandled. So, um, my, I mean, I don't really get like quite the same sense as you do for the villain. I think the Count is one of the better ones overall, um, because even though as I, I have issues with the way that uh, Granny Weatherwax deals with it, I think it's not that well explained. I do think it's a fairly good justification for the way that he eventually falters and becomes the stereotypical Terry Pratchett villain where he just we had minor technical difficulties there and we got into a massive fist fight so heated that our <laughs> the uh, debate thing. over what was better between Witches Abroad and Carpe Juggalum go so, you know, I was going to actually say that we were too intelligent and like it just couldn't really pick up on that so we had to recalibrate it for our very intellectual points that we were making both good arguments. I mean, it, it we, could, we, we it come could, off really well both, yeah. in in both situations. We were arguing very, very like coherently while punching each other in the face. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, Norman Mailer and Gorvadal. Exactly. Or um, 
Sartre and Camus. Who are those people? <laughs> uh, Sartre and Camus are French philosophers. Do you remember? Did we do? We done? Did we do the outsider by Camus in, in college? I don't think so. That might have been like in your master's. The lad who uh, his man dies and he's just really apathetic about it. And he kills a fellow on the beach, and he's really apathetic about it. It might be one of those ones that if it was it like an optional test, test, uh, test it may have been, may have been. Right. Uh, point is with them anyway. <laughs> it's always Camus over Sartre. Camus used to play in goal, and he said he learned everything he knew about philosophy from football. He's the one to trust. Um, okay. And uh, actually, Norman Mailer and Gorbadal just are like both kind of like American intellectuals and writers. Uh, Norman Mailer. I am uh, known for writing the fight, the book about the uh, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Rumble in the Jungle. I feel like we might be getting really good. Right, 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 okay. This is a good story. We think fist fighting and being intelligent. Apparently, they hate each other so much that, like, they saw one another at a party one time, and Mailer just went up and boxed Vidal. Uh, Mailer went up and boxed Vidal in the face, and Vidal, like, you know, went flat, fell on the ground, and just from the ground, he just said, "Once again, Norman Mailer is at a loss for words." <laughs> <laughs> oh well. <laughs> So in summary, he, he uh, won that fight without throwing a punch. In summary, Colin won the argument, but uh, he also has a black eye. Yeah. Well, the, the, the point is, we didn't actually, um, we didn't actually uh, miss out very much. I literally cut off about a, a minute of what we were saying. So, uh, so I was we got back po- to this question of yeah. Of I was making the point of the count being uh, what I felt was, I felt like there was more justification for him becoming what we're commonly referring to now as the Terry Pratchett villain where towards the end, towards the last act, they always become slightly crazed and do something stupid so the hero can take advantage of it. I felt it made more sense in this context, far more so than uh, it did in Witches Abroad, because for him, he's been weatherwaxed at this point, so he's basically been poisoned to... And like uh, he's forced to act this way, whereas uh, Lily, I feel like it's just she's just written that way, and it doesn't really feel natural for a character. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think there is more... Uh groundwork laid to you know like kind of to set him up as this hubristic figure and so I just think for me it's just not not so much that it happens it's how it's executed like that it just goes on for so long mm. um and 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 it's it's sort of for me then like counterbalance on the other end when you have uh, as we were talking about earlier the vampires is suddenly arriving and being these all-powerful force like the both the way they're set up and the way they're defeated feels really imbalanced to, to me I wouldn't. Say, I'd say slightly imbalanced. Well, not. I'd say. I'd say in between the two. I'd say it is imbalanced, but not like overtly so. I mean, it does have like the nice kind of build up as they're approaching Lankra in the coach. It has that great moment with. Um, oh, what was the name of? Uh, Big Jim Beef is that oh, the name yeah, of the troll, the troll yeah. who uh, thinks uh, you know it's, it's like when people call themselves Rocky. He thinks it's a cool name, yeah. but um, you know, like there and there's a few like instances of when they're arriving, and uh, it's only when they actually get to Lankra it happens so quickly. Like you don't even see them, you know, getting out of the coach yeah. or anything like that. It's just the first time you see them in Lankra they're kind of in control, which yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll grant is a bit jarring. All right. Um, okay. Well, let's let's say. Let's just take a if, if it's going above Witches Abroad, is it better than Reaper Man at number 10? No, I don't think it is. I mean, I think we can both agree straight off that it's definitely not better than Reaper Man. Yeah, right? uh, funnily enough, Reaper Man has similar problems with the, the structures kind of all over it the does, place. It does, but I feel like, like Reaper Man... Like a lot of plot lines that match up kind of thematically and are touching mm-hmm. on the same events, but plot-wise, don't mind. But, I mean, the highs of Reaper Man are 
dizzyingly high. Like this, yeah. Reaper Man's one where I've seen other lists where people have it like in their you know the top three best disc world books ever, and Reaper Man's there. And, and it, it kind of, in some ways, it deserves to be so. Like we, I mean, we really highlighted some of the narrative like uh, problems there, and I think we were justified in putting it a bit lower. I think I think I might have wanted to put it lower than you did, if mm-hmm. I remember rightly. Um, but you know, I think we we did a good job on that one. But this one, as as good as I think it is, it definitely doesn't top uh, Reaper Man. But let's say it's going in the other direction. Do you think it's better than Moving Pictures? Um, yeah, I think you could say that it is because it has more satisfying characters. I think that mm. that would definitely be like you know, ultimately, whichever, whenever you're arguing any of these, it's like you're obviously at some level choosing to prioritize something like whether it's yeah. structure or characters or. It, it does feel, clo- it actually, I think it feels closer to moving pictures than Witches Abroad. Like, if the comparison was to be made there, I think we'd have an easier time. But even just comparing it now, I mean, yeah, it's, the thing is, the themes of moving pictures, I remember just being flabbergasted mm-hmm. by, like, how postmodern and interesting it was. And I was like, I don't remember. Like, I think I'm always going to hold that one in high regard because, like, the second or even, I think maybe it was the third time reading it just hit me for six like I just was not expecting how deep it was um, so I'm always going to hold that in high regard in this list but I understand that there were a lot of issues with it like the characters in it leave a lot to be desired and it is kind of messy in parts it kind of has a similar problem in that a lot of it drags um, somewhat necessarily but it doesn't change the fact that it does drag a little bit in the mm-hmm. middle um, I think yeah, I think the key thing with moving pictures is like the themes and how it gets like that post-modernity across. But I think I'd rank this one higher. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. It's moving pictures definitely gets points for like originality that this one doesn't. But this one's um, so well written. Well, like, yeah, yeah. Like like he's, the, he's, at least the dialogue and the characters are so well written in this. You know, yeah. for the most part. Like it, you definitely could feel comparing the two of them that he's written. Whatever ten, ten, well, probably not including this one. Probably about twenty books in the interim between Moving Pictures and this mm. one, and it ha- really has improved him as a writer. Like he's got Absolutely. such a great eye for characteri- characterization and for dialogue that yeah would certainly get Carpe Juggalum above Moving Pictures for me. So it does so definitely it, it, it comes down to which is abroad yeah, and yeah. Carpe Juggalum, and I can see once again we're at something of an impasse. Now um, we could uh, I mean, we could do what we did the last time and ask Rose the next time. She's well, we can give her a call right now, but. Um, for the time being, let's try and break it down, okay? Like so, let's kind of do pros and cons thing, um, because I think that might be a good way to go about this, okay? So, not the themes, but the overall narrative and structure of the story. If we were to go on it that way, which would you think gets better, or which has like the superior story? Because if if it was me personally. I think in this case, I would agree with you that I think Witches Abroad does better. Because admittedly, like I've said, it's um, the first two-thirds of it feel a little bit detached. But, you know, at least it's get, it gets it right that it's better to have the first two-thirds to be like a detached and build to a climax, even if the climax leaves a little to be desired, rather than to have a funny little first thir- first act and then dragging it out a bit. Like, the yeah. mi- I think the middle, like, the second act of Carpe Juggalum is probably its strongest point. Like, because the first half is so fast and the last one drags, but the middle they kind of get right, I think. Yeah. Um, and this is structure, but I suppose story... Yeah, like, yeah. The, it, it helps, too, that, again, it comes back to an originality thing that, like, uh, Witches Abroad feels very... Um, 
uh, obviously it's tapping into a lot of stuff Pratchett talks about, well, like the power of stories and the power of beliefs, mm. but it's whole fairy tale aesthetic and things like that uh, feel much more distinct than Carpe Juggalum's retread of a lot mm. of the ground. And that is, I, I admit that is a problem with Carpe Juggalum, that so much of it is a retread, so I can, yeah. What about uh, characters, like, both in terms of the kind of, like, characters that only show up in, in either book and, and the ones that show up in both and which, which one, which book are they better served by? The Witches are better written in Witches Abroad, but I just, I can't get over, like, I think the vampires themselves, I, I really like them and I just can't really forgive, like, I, I, I remember always being disappointed by Lily Weatherwax, I just felt she was badly handled. Um, it's kind of a draw on that one. Yeah, I'm kind of already seeing the light at the end of something like a feel which is a broad emotion. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, to guys talking about their feelings. Well, see, the thing is with this, I feel like uh, this is one of the places I think Carpe Juggalum wins this one because uh, <coughs> you know Granny Weatherwax is kind of uh, feeling kind of. Uh, shaky about like where she stands in terms of good and evil, but it's resolved very quickly. Whereas in Carpe Juggalum, it feels <coughs> it hits the hits the bone a lot uh, closer to home. You know, like it really feels like even though it's not as powerful as Lords and Ladies, like it's still like kind of retreading stuff, but it's still more powerful than Witches Abroad. So yeah. I think that might now I I tend to get a little bit hoodwinked when like something has a real strong emotional core. So that might be why I'm leaning towards Carpe Juggalum. Um, what about general writing and dialogue? I don't think there's a huge amount to, to separate them there. I think like they're both got pretty mm. funny, you know, like sharp piece of dialogue, and also those those great Pratchetti and one liners that boil moral complexity down to this mm. resounding, uh, you know, kind of key point. Um, like, I mean, the fact that I have Carpeggio Gallum right here beside me and so do you, I'm sure we, uh, it's fresher in our heads and we could call to mind. The thing is, though, I do, re- more, I do remember Witches Abroad had amazing, like, writing. Like, I, I always remember the first two uh, thirds of that book are just so good. Like, it's great to just traveling from different places, fish out of water thing. It's it's just fun. So, like, the writing in that, I think, is absolutely stellar. And it doesn't suffer from the fact that it needs... Well, depending on your point of view, your perspective... Um, like, it doesn't necessarily need to join it to the end. It should, but it feels detached from the end. Yeah. You know, as an overall story, it falters, I think. But for a piece it, of select it does, writing... It does a bit when you get closer to genuine. You start to see the kind of, like, like the Little Red Riding Hood vignette is very much like... I, like, is, uh, uh, you know, if, if, is, if you're just looking at it in terms of plot and structure, it's important to kind of getting across those, like, the real horror of Lily forcing people to live by these fairy tale archetypes, yeah. you know. But stuff like, like the vampire bit and the, the running of the bulls bit is, like, less uh, plot relevant. That point, although there is a lot of character stuff going on there with uh, McGrath kind of being, um, you know, really displeased with how nasty Granny is and how mm-hmm. little actual magic she does and how she could be much better. And obviously just kind of sets up the conflict between them and uh, sets up then... Granny both defeating Lily, but also making it clear to Mrs. Gogol that magic can't rule the city and people have to think for themselves. Mm. Yeah, it's um, hmm. yeah, I'm kind of forgetting that there was some really good bits in Witches Abroad that are kind of coming back to me now that you're saying it. One last one that I want to go back to is um, themes, like the themes of the books. Mm-hmm. Like uh, with Witches Abroad, we had like the idea of stories and uh, you know uh, folklore and that sort of thing, and uh, 
it's actually they're kind of similar themes in a certain way, like just approached from different angles. Like, I mean, it is kind of talking about like folklore and stories, but it's more about perspective rather than the tradition of stories. Mm-hmm. You know, like that there are two sides to every coin. Like, you know, you have to view things from different lights. Whereas, like in stories, it's just like you have to remember these are stories and like not necessarily real life. Mm-hmm. S- similar but different. It's it's interesting yeah. that like uh, I suppose it's always going to be that way when dealing with the witches because their entire hook is the fact that witches were traditionally viewed as you know bad and evil. And this is more like a a feminist slant as well that were like you know they're kind of well, no they're just empowered women. So that's um, mm-hmm. tricky. I mean because they're both so similar, I think. I mean, you can, for a lot of this is a tie, but I'm aware that I said uh, Witches Abroad is kind of a better in most of the situation, so I suppose I have to uh, begrudgingly admit that I think Witches Abroad probably is the better book, even though I really enjoyed this one, and I had, it's the Lily, it's the Lily Weatherwax thing I always come back to. <laughs> I remember being so disappointed that, like, oh my god, it's like super badass granny's sister and she's younger she'll be able to kick her ass like you know actually but, I was always uh, wasn't sure about that whether she was meant to be younger or older because um, oh wait no I think she just like looks younger she looks like, she looks younger because like uh, she's you know she's you, but yeah I thought the implication could be it's like because granny has had to make all these hard decisions that's and she didn't have to yeah, yeah yeah but but it's all for some reason the line about Granny saying our mam threw her out always made me think she was older because that would have happened like when yeah like 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 the fact that it was their mam taking a step rather than you know Granny knocking her back in line kind of Im- Im- implied to me that like well she must have been younger than her if she mm. she was going to be the one who did but I don't know it's just uh I yeah, I must look up to see if that's ever like definitively stated somewhere and I, you know we just missed it but what what I should do too is put it to feelers on social media to um, yeah see if people agree with us about that. your your assessment of of Lily because I must say it's like something I when when you explained it to me about that kind of like like her sort of reduction into this hysterical villain I understood like I understood perfectly what you meant but it struck me that I was like oh that's never been an issue to me when I was you know when I was reading it or or listening to the audiobook but it obviously is to you, and I can't deny it's there. Like it's, mm. it certainly is there. So I must see. Like, is this something? If, if anyone kind of has strong feelings on this, please get in touch with us on, on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email. Just um, so I can say I was right on something. <laughs> it's always nice to hear this is, that. This is the inverse of when I when I uh, kind of got got a amassed the social media powers to denounce your, your <laughs> for like small gods. gods. Yeah. Oh, was it was it Mort? Was that we got ranked over small gods? Um, no, we haven't. We have masqueraded small gods tied for all, and then, then uh, Rose uh, was oh, the, the yeah. tiebreaker. But but I just put out it was a more general kind of like uh, like feeling of like oh this is he feels one way I feel the other way he's right here. But um, I mean I don't I I don't kind of feel like so I, I don't. Uh, I, Come across too strongly. I don't feel like you're wrong about Lily Weatherwax. I'm just that it's something that like has never jumped out at me. So I'm like, this, I when mean, I hear you say, it, uh, I think, oh, is is this something other people have? This is something or? like, yeah, because and like it's good that you bring it back to small guys because that's the other thing we disagreed hugely on. That like you really, really loved that book, and I just like it just didn't click with me the way it did with you, and apparently so many other people. I'm just like it was just fine, but. Um, that's just me. Uh, you know, the one last thing that I realized pushes uh, Witches Abroad over the finishing line for me is that I realize now you can absolutely pick up Witches Abroad individually and say, I'm just going to read this book in isolation. Yeah. Whereas I don't think you could do that with Carpe Juggle. And, like, you really need the context of the rest of the books. And I think, you know, you, you know, some people would say that's ridiculous to try and pick up one, but uh, 
that really shouldn't be the case. You should be able to succinctly read any one of these in isolation. Like uh, that's kind of a mark of a good book. So yeah, I think I feel like and most of them you can too. Even Lords and Ladies, that's so climactic. I feel like you yeah. can still you could still do that. Um, it's like you get more out of it if you had read the previous two, yeah. but but you could still just enjoy it. That's the thing. Witches Abroad is a great romp, whereas this like it kind of relies on you having the knowledge of like uh, the entire everything that's come before. Like because you really wouldn't get granny's uh behavior like going off like unless that you'd seen everything she's experienced up to this point mm-hmm. i think so yeah with that in mind i think uh yeah, we so have this new number 12 below which is abroad above moving pictures is carpe juggalum uh so thanks very much for listening and uh if you want to get in touch with us as i said you can email us at radiomorepark.gmail.com you can leave a comment on the website at uh, radiomorepark.wordpress.com where we have all the episodes and we have this list and we have various other little lists we've done in the early episodes. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter if you just look up Radio Morpork. Uh, if you really like us, please leave us a review on whatever streaming service you use. I'd really appreciate it. It would help spread the good word. Um, but yeah, until next time when we'll be reading The Fifth Elephants, good night and good luck. Carpe diem. Or juggling. Whichever. <laughs>